Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. This is actually her second time being here uh, in light of recent events in Afghanistan. She's come back on the show to share her harrowing experiences uh, that uh, took place over the last four months or so there uh, from the end of July to December. Uh, she's formerly with Fox News. She's an international bureau journalist. She's the author of the amazing book, Only Cry for the Living. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Holly McKay. Thanks for having me again, Mike. Thanks for coming back on. I know uh, since you've been back, you've only been back for a few weeks, uh, and it's been, from from the sounds of it, quite, quite the whirlwind of you doing uh, other interviews and trying to get back on your feet and and settled in. So I appreciate you bouncing around and taking the time to, to come here and, and share these, these experiences because they're super important. Thank you. I'd like to take a quick second uh, to shout out and thank our sponsor for today's podcast, Origin Labs and Jocko Fuel. Jocko Fuel is a great product. Uh, he's got a ton of products actually within the Jocko Fuel line. Uh, the guests and I enjoy them on the show. And outside, I take a lot of the supplements. Uh, I've got some of the Origin Lab jeans, uh, boots, geese, and uh, it's just all around American industry. Uh, they do a fantastic job really re-revolutionizing American industry from start to finish. It's all American made, uh, all American sourced. Everything start to finish is made right there in-house, and they really do a phenomenal job creating the products and fulfilling the whole ball of wax. They've been a huge supporter of the Mic Drop podcast for a while now, and I really can't thank Jocko Fuel and Origin Labs enough for the job that they do for us. And so thank you to you guys. I'd also like to talk about uh, my brand of dog food that just came out. What are the two key components for canine success? That's effective training and proper nutrition. Fueled by Team Dog brings those two components to your family and best friend. The perfect nutritional balance that results in a higher mental acuity, energy, overall vitality, and even an improved appearance. Every product you will find in my company's store was born from the battlefield and not from the boardroom. Let my life's work help you become your dog's hero. Um, what, uh, what have you been up to? Uh, I guess we'll work kind of backwards since you've been back. Uh, how's the adjustment been from, from having been over there? Um, so I landed in New York. So at first it was a little bit strange. Um, just, yeah, being on roads that weren't bombed out and seeing 
shops that were open and, you know, beauty salons and things. But I think it took me a little bit, maybe about a week, I think, to adjust back. And I um, I was in Los Angeles and then I've been staying with my some friends of mine in, in Idaho. So nice and, and kind of quiet, hiding away for a little bit. So. Yeah. Do you ski and all that or what? I don't. I used to. Yeah. But then it was just one of those things that I got really injured years ago and then decided I just didn't love it enough for it to be worth it. Yeah. 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 I hear you. <laughs> Um, so from, from that standpoint, I'm curious, you know, when, when you come back that initial kind of huge contrast from where you've been to, to where you now are, uh, what, what goes through your mind when you, when you experience that first kind of realization that you're not in Kansas anymore that way? I think for me, it's a really a big struggle to leave. Like I did not want to leave. I'm never ready to leave, even though this time there was, I knew I had to leave. There was something that I was like, I think my, I think my time's up for now. Um, I need to leave, but it was really, really difficult to leave. There was a lot of guilt, I think, in just being able to, to leave, being able to walk away, being able to get on that plane to Abu Dhabi and, and knowing that so many people would really kill to have that opportunity. Um, yeah, and then it's just always hard, I think, coming back. Um, I think when you are working overseas in a lot of these places, you can kind of exist in a bubble. So you can kind of – it's real life, but it's a different real life. And so in, in some ways coming back is more stressful in a very different way. Yeah. Because you, you're dealing with different pressures. You're dealing with just, just life stuff and – in some ways you can you can avoid that when you're not here yeah was there a, was there difficulty in leaving i know you mentioned that the opportunity of you you being able to and so many people can't what was the was it because you're a journalist or what it's okay. because i'm australian and american you know i have a passport that enables me to leave um to be able to get onto that plane and and to go and i know that so every, every day, even now, so many Afghans all day on LinkedIn, WhatsApp, wherever, are just begging me to help them get out. And I hate having to sort of point that I point them in the direction of where they can get information. But it's not my job. I, I can't get you out. That's not what yeah. I do. From, from a logistics standpoint, uh, you hear on the news uh, quite often, depending on which uh, which outlet it is, that there are still uh, you know hundreds of American citizens there with credentials, et cetera, that, that aren't, aren't leaving or aren't able to leave. Can you uh, kind of clarify or shed some light so on that? So there definitely are. And so when, you know, when everyone else had sort of left and the evacuations had stopped when the U.S. left and I made the decision that I wanted to stay and everyone says, well, how are you going to get out? And I, I was pretty confident. I knew I would be able to get out. Um, the first thing I did was go to the Pakistani embassy in Kabul and get a visa and a pass for the Tokum Gate. And that was more my backup in case the commercial airliners didn't start again. I felt fairly confident that I would be there for several months. And at some point, the airlines would start again. Um, which they did. There are a couple of airlines that are, are running, I think, to Dubai. You can get a, a flight. You can also get a flight to Abu Dhabi, as I did, and then Islamabad. So I'm lucky in that sense. And I think the issue, there's no issue with American citizens leaving. The issue comes, just given the Afghan culture, is that it's not one person who wants to leave. They want to take their family. They want to take 20 members of their family. And so that's therein 
why they're not leaving. So if you have an American passport, provided that you aren't wanted by the Taliban or haven't committed a crime, they will let you leave. But many who are American citizens want to take a lot of people with them who aren't American citizens. And that's where I think some of the delay comes in. Is the, uh, is the having committed a crime, is that subjective as far as? I haven't sort of heard personally of anybody that's been necessarily stopped, but I do know that um, the Taliban, like if you are wanted for, if you worked for the previous government and you're wanted for corruption or, or they think that you stole a lot of money, which happened a lot in the previous government, uh, the Taliban might try to stop you from, from leaving. But I haven't heard of that happening at a large scale. Most people that I know who have wanted to, go, to get out have gotten out um, on those flights, but but certainly, you know, it, it could definitely be subjective. I just know that, um, yeah, they, they do have a list. Yeah. I guess that's the thing that uh, I, I wonder about hearing. You know, again, you hear these horror stories from a lot of different, you know, outlets that talk about, uh, you know, the retribution component of having worked for the American government uh, or the previous, you know, yeah. Afghan administration and, and what, like, I mean, I, I can't imagine there's databases, right? So they're just, what are they, handwritten lists? that? Yeah, you know. and I think, you know, and this isn't a popular fact, but it's a fact, but people don't want to hear. The retribution issue has been very much exaggerated by the media. Um, if I wasn't in Afghanistan and I was just reading Twitter, I would have thought, oh, my goodness, people are being dragged out of their houses, they're being slaughtered. And certainly there are isolated cases of that happening, but they're very few and far between. It's very much the exception, not the norm. And I think what I sort of <clears throat> sensed was there was this contagious fear that was happening. So somebody felt that because they'd worked for an American 10 years ago or a contracting company or whatever it may be, they automatically just assumed they were going to be targeted and everybody around them was scared. So everybody this sort of there was this contagious fear when when you actually dug down into it, there wasn't, you know, there were only a sort of a select few, perhaps the commandos and, and people that had done a lot of very heavy work against the Taliban's. They were the only ones that were really on those target lists. For the most part, um, there wasn't the sort of certified threat or, or case of, it was just a lot of fear that was happening. And, and rightfully so, it, you know, certainly is terrifying for, for people. Yeah. Why do you suppose the media on, on the American side was so over-exaggerated that way? I don't know, really, to be honest. I think, that, honestly, there wasn't, there wasn't that many journalists there. Um, really, once the Americans had left, the journalists that were there were usually European journalists that, that I saw, um, you know, and the, and the big outlets still had people there, but oftentimes they, they weren't American, so it was... I think there was just a lack of coverage that was happening on the ground. Um, and I just think things just got very much perpetuated on social media and news outlets because they didn't have people on the ground were then relying on diaspora or secondhand information. And it was just spreading like wildfire. And to me, it was, it was, I was researching a lot of these things that were happening and photos that were being shared and, and they were very, there was a lot of disinformation campaigns and they were coming from a lot of different countries and a lot of different people with different agendas. And I think somehow that got picked up and I don't want to downplay any of the terrible things that happened because there certainly were, 
But I just think on the large scale, uh, the degree to which it was it was being portrayed was not was just not accurate to what was actually happening. Yeah, well, that certainly makes sense. I, I guess it is is probably a good uh, you know litmus or metric for how our media is for everything over here. I mean, everything seems to get over exaggerated uh, in, in a lot of ways, and I think a lot of things uh, get under exaggerated or, or not not enough coverage. Um, from a from a communication standpoint, being over there, I'm I'm curious about uh, Twitter access, internet access, power, things like that. As a journalist, and and that being the main vein with which you communicate back to uh, all of us here, um, how how shaky was that, and what kind of infrastructure issues are there with you know once the United States completely pulled out, and now the Taliban is kind of at the helm? Was there a a, a big shift or or no? How did that all right. kind of shake out? I mean, one thing, you know, there, there's no real blockage on the internet or anything like that in, in Afghanistan. And that's one thing I actually liked always about working in Afghanistan was unlike working in a lot of places, Syria or somewhere where you are under a dictatorship where things are restricted, Afghanistan kind of feels like the Wild West. Like there's just, you know, they can't sweep the streets, let alone restrict the internet. So... um that really didn't change when the Taliban took over. Uh, electricity has always been bad in Afghanistan. Um, it did get a little bit worse, and it certainly gets worse during the winter. Um, my understanding is that Uzbekistan basically loaned $60 million of electricity to the Taliban's uh, on credit. So, you know, the Taliban doesn't have any money to pay for it. Yeah. So there were certainly days where um, you'd go days without electricity, and typically, you know, it would, it would cut out at around around midnight usually and not come back on maybe until nine or so during the day. So that period we don't have electricity, but that, that always happened even yeah. before the Taliban was in power. And weather-wise where you were at, it was fairly mild. It wasn't a big deal. Um, I traveled a lot. So I pretty much went to almost every province when I was there. Um, so it would really, depending on where I was, but Kabul got really cold really quickly. So we kind of went from this searing heat. And then in the beginning of October, it just, yeah, you felt that drop. And then by December it was snowing. So, yeah. and, and the situation certainly gets pretty, pretty awful during the winter. It's, yeah. it's not a, not a nice place to be. Yeah. Uh, so moving back to when you first decided to go over there when you did, uh, can you walk us through a, your train of thought and B just logistically, like how that, that took place? So I, I spent a bit of time in Afghanistan in the past and, and I decided that I thought it was really important to sort of cover the Americans leaving Afghanistan. I thought this was a real milestone in, you know, in our history and so my thinking was, and I, I teamed up with a, a good friend of mine, a photographer in Australia named Jake Simkin, who spent a lot of, he lived in Afghanistan for many years and, and we um, worked together in the Middle East. And so we thought we'd go back and document, I guess, that final month of the US and then the couple of months after, which we thought would be the Afghan government trying to stand on its own two feet um, while still fighting the Taliban's. And we sort of got there and... I, I couldn't I couldn't have imagined that things fell as fast as they could. I, I just it was just so quick. Um, so, yeah. So just uh, not to get you off a train of thought, but from from the amount of time that you've spent there, um, were, were there huge uh, disparities in what you thought would happen as far as how the U.S. left and, and what the response would be versus what happened? Uh, I mean, I know you said you you couldn't have imagined, but. I know for a lot of us back here, seeing 
the process with which the United States uh, left was was very shocking. Yeah. You know? uh, but I guess in in thinking that, is, what was your your train of thought while that was taking place, other than than surprise? I mean, what what were you expecting? I guess. I think I didn't. I, I think it was inevitable that that things were going to fall, but I I didn't think Kabul would fall not that quickly, and I I just didn't think the speed of which it happened. I I wasn't expecting that, and sort of to give you some context, that first week when I was there and I was meeting with the NDS, the Afghan security teams and, and the commandos and, you know, every one of them was just swearing black and blue that it, that was going to be okay, that, you know, Kabul was going to hold, that Mazar was going to hold, that all these major cities were going to hold. Um, and I think they really believed it. And so with them believing it, I guess, we believed it to some degree that at least it was going to to be okay for a couple of weeks, if not months. Um, certainly the the withdrawal was was really chaotic and so many missteps that happened in that, and it should it should never have happened that way. But I I think somehow there was just so many blinders on in the sense that there, there was a there was a failure of intel. There was a failure of of really understanding, I guess the power that the Taliban had that people didn't realize, the, their, their numbers, their um, ability to, and, and they've been started, and I always say it wasn't for them, they won not by firing bullets, they won by having tea with local officials and convincing them to leave. They won through talks, and I think somehow we missed that. We missed that this had been going on very extensively behind the scenes for a year before it had happened. Why, why do you suppose we missed that? I have a few different theories on it. I think one of the things I noticed in previous times in Afghanistan was there was there was just sort of a lack, I think, and when I would go to the, the NATO base there and I would talk to diplomats and, and to military, there seemed to be a lack of understanding how the regular Afghan thought. And what I really noticed was the people that were coming, and especially after Benghazi, they, they really shut down a lot of those embassies and people weren't allowed to leave and go to the streets and things and have that interaction that they were able to have in previous years where you could really understand what was happening. And so after that, I think what I noticed was that the people coming in were coming in already, you know, we, they were vetted, they had very much a one-track stream of information. And I think there was a lack of really understanding that people were really unhappy with the Afghan government, that people were just fed up with the corruption, that people were angry. And I think when you get that angry, even if you don't agree with the Taliban's ideologically, you join them because you're so annoyed at having to pay a bribe every time you go through a checkpoint or having to, you know, daily life was just really hard for Afghans. You know, they're already poor and yet they're having to give these people, you know, money just to get basic services. Um, and I think... There was an there was an underestimation of of how uh, the degree to which that was happening, and then in that how the Taliban was able to use that as a recruitment tool and get support. I just think the big picture was missed. Yeah. Why do you think that uh, the United States either allowed or had no idea that all of this Afghan corruption that they they essentially condone if if they're kind of behind the the process, et cetera. 
uh, or I guess it's as much of a question as do you think that they knew? Did you know that, that we knew? I think the U.S. absolutely knew. They absolutely knew, but it was viewed as a uh, corruption is, is just systemic in this part of the world. Not much we can do about it. And they they sort of thought it it wasn't it wasn't that big of a priority to to deal with. Whereas to me, that corruption was really the number one thing that that opened the floodgates to the Taliban's. Mm -hmm. They were able to use that as their recruiting tool, still use that as this sort of message of, you know, we aren't corrupt, we're going to do things a very different way. And and it was just so, it was on every possible level. Like I just, even when I thought I knew about corruption, I would hear stories from Afghans and it, it blew my mind. It just blew my mind and it made me really angry. And I would say to them, I take it personally because that was my money as a U.S. taxpayer. I paid for that corruption and you stole my money. That money should have gone to the Afghan people and it didn't. It went to the pockets of a lot of corrupt people. You had cases of, of judges creating fake trials just so they could get bribe money. You had people just being arrested so that they could get money to be released. Like it just... You had to pay thousands of dollars to get an interview at the U.S. Embassy through a middle person, whoever was arranging that. Mm. At what point does that become too much? Yeah. And at what point do you say, this is not my government anymore? I'm going to support someone else who wants to fight this government. And the U.S. was very aware of that. And I think the in the Cigar Reports, uh, I think a couple of years ago, um, they warned, they said corruption is the number one you know, threat to Afghan society. Again, nothing was done about it. And if you don't nip those things in the bud right in the beginning, they just grow and proliferate and nobody was held accountable. There's rarely cases of, of people ever being held accountable or prosecuted or, or anything. <clears throat> Would you say that uh, from a, a most egregious standpoint of the stories of corruption that you heard that... that uh those are, are the examples or is there one that sticks out as being kind of the the worst that you'd heard? I mean, I think th with that is, is, is not really one story that it's just every story, yeah. just every story. And I think at the end of the day, if you look at the Afghan military on paper, there's 300,000 troops. Okay. Well, 300,000 troops should be able to hold out the Taliban. But in reality, there wasn't 300,000 troops. In reality was that, the commandos were taking, you know, so somebody would die in battle, they would take their bank card and still be withdrawing their salary every month. Um, they would create, you know, what we call ghost soldiers. So they were creating people that, that never existed or that had left the military or were dead, but were still taking the money. So when the US looks at the paperwork and says, oh, okay, well, there's 300,000 soldiers, they should be able to, to take on this task. In reality, they were severely outnumbered because there just wasn't that many. Yeah. So the, I guess with that, um, did you see a shift as soon as we left and the Taliban took over where, where they actually did what they said they were going to do and there was a lot less of that? Have, have you seen that, that contrast? Um, a lot less of which? The corruption. Like, so that well, they don't have money to be corrupt right now. So right now, um, you know, they're still playing by their, you know, Mullah Omar founded the Taliban to say that we aren't going to be corrupt. And, and generally speaking, I, yeah, I didn't, didn't encounter too much of that. There was one person in Helmand, a Taliban um, culture minister who who wanted money 
or something and we basically just said no. But that was the only time anyone had kind of asked, whereas in the previous government it was just expected that you paid. So, so far, we don't know what will happen when they get money, um, but right now they don't have money to to be corrupt. So with that, that's one of the dicey things that I think you see uh, how our our government and current administration is – is trying to walk that line or tap dance around. Do we, you know, authenticate them as far as considering them a legitimate government? Do we, do we treat them that way? Do we talk to, you know, uh, as well as a lot of other countries, what, what is your kind of uh, perspective on, on a, how it's going and b how, how countries should look at them? Yeah. I think it's really difficult on multiple levels. Obviously nobody wants to directly fund the Taliban and I completely agree with that. But at the end of the day, it's the Afghan people that are suffering. And right now, Afghanistan is the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. And the speed of that, how that happened. Um, So when we say we're not going to, you know, we froze the money as soon as the Taliban came in and we say we're not going to support them in any way, it's not the Taliban who's hurt by that. That's the Afghan people. The Taliban operate, they say, we can operate on low overhead. They never got, their foot soldiers don't get paid. They never got paid for 20 years. Um, so it's really the Afghan people that are just, are suffering hugely. And I think that we need to figure out a way to get aid to them that doesn't go through the Taliban. And that's always difficult when they are the government that's in power. But there has to be a way around that in some way. I don't. I don't think it's right to turn a blind eye, especially, you know, after after being there for twenty years and and I guess creating a very artificial economy that that went bust overnight. I also look at it a little bit from a national security perspective. In that, if you look at when the Taliban first came to power in ninety six, there was no more pariah government in the world. There was no government that was as ostracized as the Taliban. And they had no money. Nobody gave them money. Nobody supported them. The one person who came in and gave them not much money, it was only about a million and a half, was Osama bin Laden. So naturally, they felt very uh, akin to to um, accommodating him because he was the only one that was giving them a tiny bit of money to stay afloat. And I think it would be tone deaf if we don't take into consideration history and how we can avoid those mistakes of the past. For sure. I, uh, I mean, I, I think it's natural and uh, expected for you know a country in, in that level of need to feel beholden to anybody that, that helps them out. I guess I'm, you know, I, I wonder what, what the next steps are. Uh, to your point, it's, it's always difficult to administer aid to people that need it through, through governments. I mean, you see that, uh, we, we've seen that historically. Somalia, I think, is, a, is as good of an example in, in our nation's foreign policy history as to you know how that that can ultimately lead to us getting back involved and in, in, you know taking military action to to prevent that i don't know what that right answer is i, I hate to see the level of uh, misery and and just um, the, the things that are taking place in afghanistan now are, are heartbreaking for sure i i don't know what the right answer is i, mean, I don't think there is a right answer i think we have to choose what the least worst answer is because yeah. they're all sort of bad and is there one that sticks out for you in terms of the uh, least least worst or you know yeah. in the interest of not turning a blind eye but not fueling a, a terrorist government sure i don't i don't i mean the level mike the level of malnutrition i mean we went to one of the public hospitals it was sort of in my last week there and 
there's just there's babies all over the floor that are are just so severely malnourished that their their hair has turned white and the mothers are just on the floor trying to breastfeed them. I it, it's just heartbreaking and when you have to look into their their faces and I would walk outside and and people hadn't been paid their salaries and the nurses and the doctors would just accost me and be like can you pay my salary for me um it was just heartbreaking and I I think as an American you know we can't walk away from that that you know this is a place we've been for 20 years and I don't think anybody wants to see nobody wants to see that in Afghanistan um and so for me Obviously, I'd like to see, you know, some sort of sanction relief and that aid organizations can go back in because what happened really was so many of them left immediately and haven't gone back and, and there are some complications with with that. And I, I would like to see a lot of the aid organizations be able to go back. The really issue, big issue is, is money and, and not being able to access any money while there, but they definitely need that support. Um and if the US, you know, eventually has to come to some sort of talks with the Taliban, which they already have talks with the Taliban in, in Doha and have been doing that for several years, it has to come with conditions. And it has to come, you can't just you know, hand, hand free money over to the Taliban. They have to be able to be held accountable to, to certain objectives in, in the international community and beholding international human rights standards. Um, and if they don't do that, there has to be some sort of accountability in that way. Do you think, so just in thinking through it, um, fr from my perspective, if they, not that anybody's asking me what the fuck I think, but, uh, you, you know, setting up almost refugee-style camps within the country but on the, in the outskirts of towns or, or in areas where they're not going to be easily accessible or, or can get you know, railroaded or, or uh, run over, you know, by uh, forces that would try to steal everything from or whatever uh, to, to at least establish a, a basic level of, of care for women, children, you know, sick people, what, what have you. So they're, they're at least nourished to a level where, where things like that aren't happening and, and keep them alive and, and healthy and, and relatively safe with the condition of, you know, hey, we're going to bring international aid in from from all different countries and you know whether it's uh, international aid groups or, or what have you um, but they come in they set the camps up they they basically run them and, and people can come into them mm. fr you know freely unfettered and if the Taliban or any group comes in and, and tries to get in between that whether it's taking taking some of the aid or money or supplies or whatever then then there will be military action basically will come back in and, and do the same thing is that a realistic? Um, I, it certainly is a realistic or to have some kind of food bank. The issue with the Taliban is that they do try to control a lot of those things. I have friends of mine that were doing a lot of those aid um, aid drops and things, and, and the Taliban was always, you know, it would cause a lot of conflict because the Taliban was always trying to control it, and not in that they were trying to steal it, but they want the credit yeah. for for it. Um Afghanistan isn't a huge camp place, unlike other countries that I've worked in, say Iraq or Syria, where you have these big camps. There aren't so many of those in Afghanistan. There was a really big one outside sort of this park in, in Kabul, which was very informal. And it was one of the things that really surprised me because this was just several days before Kabul fell and I was there and there were just thousands of people fleeing from the north and trying to set up these little tents. And I remember that baffled me because there was so... There was no preparation at all for, for what was happening. But Afghans are 
yeah, it's not a huge sort of camp place. And I think that is comes down to a few things. Often you don't see a huge amount of homeless people there because it's such a family orientated place that uh, families will always take people in where they can. And it sort of doesn't matter if 10 people are living in a room on the floor. Um, it's a place that you see a lot of that. Um, and so I, I just don't know how perceptive, I guess, people would be to an actual camp itself. But certainly if there's a food bank or some sort of drive or they can go and get um, medical checks and, and supplies. But again, there's, there's, there's no medicine in the country. There's no, um, it's really, really difficult right now. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast. With first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. At Granger, we're for the ones who pay attention to every little detail. The ones who fuss, tinker, and sweat the small stuff. Because you know the tiniest thing can make the biggest difference when it comes to keeping business moving. We get it. We're the same way. Offering access to product experts to help you quickly and easily find what you need. So whatever your industry, you know you're always getting professional-grade products. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So how does that impact you when you're when you're there for a four month period? How are you getting well, that was money, food? Like I mean, yeah. Because I remember seeing reports it's, and stories of banks being closed or only open for like an hour, and there's lines a mile yeah. long to get money. Like how do you how do you survive? So yeah, so I had I, I took in a, a bunch of cash before I went, but that quickly kind of ran out. Um, so I couldn't. It was really really hard. Like even if I had friends of mine trying to send me Western Union transfers, I couldn't. There was no physical. Cash cash to get the transfer so I'd go to the Western Union and they would just say I'm sorry you know we're, we don't have any money today well. try to come back tomorrow um, so in the end I, I sort of had to rely on people coming in from Dubai to bring money in for me to bring in to bring in cash because there's just no hard cash so what happened when the government fell and the banks kind of closed people couldn't even get their own money so people were coming from all these provinces lining up for days and it was a maximum of $200 you were allowed to get out of your own bank account per week. Um, that did increase to 400 by the time I'd left. But but well, Afghanistan doesn't print its own money. It all gets done in Europe. So that got shut down. So there was no actual new currency new currency coming in. Uh, what What is exchange rate wise? What is $400 going to get you in a, in a week? Oh, so that is not much right now. So what happened, and this kind of gives you an idea of just how quickly things fell. So when I got there initially, I think it was about 70 Afghanis to the US dollar. And by the time I'd left, that had gone up to 100. Wow. So that's so, how much it devalued. Okay. 
Like it's just, yeah, it's dizzying to that. I've never seen yeah. a currency drop in value so much. Sounds like crypto almost. Yeah, <laughs> right. Unpredictable. The, uh, well, so with, with that, is that that's 400 Afghani dollars that they can take out a, a, a week? Uh, well, it's equivalent of 200 American, American. Or, or 400 okay. American now. So it's, yeah. And then from, uh, from just kind of the way, I mean, I know you, you traveled around a lot, but was it, was it fairly consistent as far as most store shops, restaurants, uh, grocery stores, places like that, that you can actually get food or, or are those few and far between or was the there food still- is there for sure. I think, I mean, shops really opened back up very quickly. Um, but again, it's, it's people can't afford to buy what's there. It's not that the markets aren't full. It's that the markets are, people just can't afford to buy what's there anymore. So something that's very staple in Afghan culture is you buy one of those pieces, little big pieces of bread, and it's always 10 Fs. Um, And so by the end of it, you started to see, it was still 10 Fs for the, the bread, which is very cheap, but you started to see the bread get really small because they wanted to keep it 10 Fs because that's what Afghans were used to paying, but suddenly it's half the size of what it used to be. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So what, uh, can you walk us through, like, was there a typical day there of, of what time you got up, what you did, where, like, or was it just different every day? Yeah, it was different every day depending on which province I was in. But when we, we had a house in Kabul. So, I mean, that typically, um, you know, would start, I'd often get up, you know, very early, try to do some sort of pathetic workout in my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> I used to try to work out in the yard outside until it got really cold. Um, so usually I'd yeah. travel with a jump rope and a few things and annoy everybody yeah. <laughs> in the house because it just vibrates. Everyone's like, outside. oh, Holly's up. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, so I'd sort of get up early and, and do that and then, yeah, so we would usually start the day pretty early in terms of doing meetings and interviews because um, the older ministries, like once the Taliban took over, the ministries all pretty much closed by one o'clock. So yeah. they work half a day. Yeah. <laughs> not a full day of work. Yeah. And oftentimes they're not even at the ministry. They're at the mosque doing their meetings. Yeah. So it was always very hard to track people down. So we usually the mornings were going out kind of doing the meetings and getting whatever content that I needed. And then um, I always had a a restaurant that I always went to when I went to Afghanistan. So I was very happy it was still open and usually went there for for lunch and smoked some hookah. What did you eat there? You know, I didn't. I'm usually a very much a carnival person, but when I was in Afghanistan, I I didn't know what happened. I I could not eat. I could not eat the meat. I could not eat even the chicken. I could just... It's hanging up on the, <laughs> you walk past the butchers, you still see the cow that's being skinned. I was like, maybe not for me today. Yeah, yeah. So I, I love Afghan yogurt though. It's really, really good. Yeah. They just they make fresh yogurt there. So I kind of lived on that really and yeah. a lot of tea. Um, and the Afghan bread is really hard to avoid. And yeah, so I went to a, a restaurant, sort of had a nice little outdoor area. It was called Herat. And yeah, and it was sort of one of the places you could, Still go and, and smoke hookah, even though it was banned by the Taliban. But really? Yeah. Do, do you know why? Well, the Taliban just banned smoking. Oh, like everyone. you're not allowed to smoke. I, but, I, I but figured you still that see, they would smoke all the time. But well, they do. Yeah. You see them sneaking it. I think in their homes they do, but there's no smoking on the street or anything oh. like that. What, what were some of the other big shifts that way um, as soon as they took over that were now all of a sudden were banned or that was different? Music. Really? No music. Um, so... <clears throat> I think you used to be able to kind of walk down the street and there was always a lot of entertainment. People would sit there on their their phones and their iPads or computers and watch movies and and 
there was a big sort of focus on on that and then that was sort of immediately squashed. Taliban views music as being as being haram, as being, you know, sinful and they have their own style of music, which is an ashid, which is basically just Islamic vocals and there's no instruments. Um, so that was a big thing that changed, was just that sort of immediate shift. So they don't, like even with headphones or something, they don't want you Oh, I still them. blast music in the car. <laughs> <laughs> I just turn it down when I get yeah. to the checkpoint. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so weddings, for example, which are a big part of Afghan culture, no more live music. They would still allow the women's side of the weddings to have a DJ of, of some description so the women can still have some music but yeah there's no live music they're very anti-instruments very Mm. anti um, do do you know why there's that correlation from from their standpoint they just view it as is um you know going back to the hadith they view uh, music as as sort of being this sinful um thing and then i think they also see it as this western sort of uh terrible influence on their culture that is they view dancing the same way pretty much yeah yeah. it's like footloose all over again yeah it totally is but people i mean again at weddings like people still sort of get away with it until the there was a case when i was there in jalalabad where um the taliban came into a wedding and and you know ended up in a gunfight because they were upset about the music and and dancing that was happening and and people there sort of fought back (coughs) so yeah is the uh, do you, do you get the impression that the the people are are willing to put up with that because it's hopefully getting rid of corruption or what what do you think the kind of the overall pulse of the of the society is right now with how it's going Yeah, it's really hard. I think in in cities like Kabul, it's really devastating to lose those things. I think it's devastating to feel like you're being plunged back into some medieval era, and especially for people that remember what it was like living under the Taliban in the 90s, which in my experience, they're very different to the, what they were in the 90s. Um, but but just that that memory is extremely terrifying. Uh, so I think the cities is where people suffer really a lot. But when you go to a lot of the rural areas in the villages, you have to acknowledge that their lives may get better. And that is because they're very conservative societies anyway. The Taliban often had a very strong influence anyway. And there were places where women didn't necessarily go to school and, and you know, were often in the homes. And so the way they view it is, well, my life isn't going to change, but now suddenly the violence has gone down a whole heap. So therefore my life's going to get better. So, um, and I think it's important to, to kind of look at at their experiences too. I think oftentimes so much of the journalism comes just from the cities like Kabul or Kandahar or Jalalabad and we forget looking at, at the experience of people in, in villages and, and what going what they're going through and how things are going to change and um, and they're very different to the cities. Yeah. So, so with that, um, I guess, did, did you get an impression from uh, from some of those rural areas that, that they were – kind of relieved that we were gone and things were going back to that and, and that things were looking up? I think so. And it really, again, it depends what villages you are in and, and how much of a hold the Taliban had in the, that area before. But I think I think for the most part, people just viewed it as the violence is going down. And, and also, too, in a lot of the areas that had strong Taliban control previously, 
they never really saw any of the benefits from the US being there. Um, they never saw, you know, great educational programs started or any of those sort of hearts and minds project because the area was often very Taliban heavy and therefore not really a particularly safe place for, for any of the, the US military to go. So for them, because they didn't see the benefit, they only saw the fighting, um, you know, it's, a, it's, it's positive for them. And, yeah. and, and some of them genuinely, they want the Taliban. They see the Taliban. Um, they, you know, agree with the sort of that extremist ideology and, and that's how they, they want to be able to live their lives. Yeah. Do you get the impression that, uh, and I know, there's some people that love us, hate us, et cetera, but kind of collectively what Afghanistan thinks about our time that we spent there and how they kind of look back on it. Yeah, I think, again, that really depends village versus uh, city areas. And I think a lot of the city areas, you know, really right up until that last day somehow believed that Americans were not going to leave. And, and they viewed America as being this sort of Band-Aid over a bullet wound, I guess, in that okay, the situation was incredibly tense, but somehow it was this security blanket. By, even though there wasn't that many American forces there, I think there was about 2,500 <coughs> prior to that, that final drawdown. And they weren't really doing any of the heavy lifting. That was being done by the Afghans. But they viewed it as this you know, superpower being there that, that it was going to be some sort of security blanket that would, that would sort of keep things held together. Um, and so when that was sort of ripped away... I think that was a big shock to them. I think there were a lot of people who who just thought it would what that America would somehow see what was happening and stay. And then there were others who were very much of the sort of mindset of well Americans are going to leave eventually whether it's now, whether it's in 10 years, whether it's 100 years, they will go home and Afghans need to figure this out on their own. I was always surprised though because I really found I rarely found anyone to be bitter about Americans either leaving or, I mean, people obviously scared and upset, but people weren't, people weren't angry at America. People weren't bitter toward America. They were accepting of the situation and just trying to figure out what they were going to do next. Yeah. Sounds like they were, they're more resilient uh, towards us than we are ourselves towards our own government. Yeah. You know, I would or, say or that. Less dependent at least. Yeah. Know. I definitely say that. Um, if, if you could kind of, um, I guess, give your, your kind of walkthrough of, of when you first got there and, and then leading up to when everything fell, I'm curious kind of what that process looked like. So, yeah, so my, I got there and, and, you know, you were in this situation. And as I said, I was, I was meeting with NDS. I was meeting with different people and everybody was, it was obviously bad situation in the north especially, but people were fairly confident that the capital and some of the major areas would hold. Um, and so having said that, I uh, several years ago um, had met with uh, Marshal Dostum in uh, Ankara in Turkey. And so for, for people that aren't familiar, he was sort of the main person that the U.S. went in through Mazar Sharif into Afghanistan after 9-11. Um, and kind of took out the Taliban, and, and he's a very controversial sort of warlord um, who who got in trouble for for some human rights violations later on. But um, anyway, so his forces, he'd come back into Afghanistan, and his forces was were teaming up. His resistance forces were teaming up with Afghan commandos in the north, and and were fighting. And so we thought we would go to Mazar on his invitation to uh, document some of their their battles. So my photographer and I left. I remember it was a very early on a Thursday morning 
and we got to Mazar and, and it was just this city that was completely full of life. Um, markets were full, people were out. You would not have imagined that all the provinces around it had fallen and that you had these battles less than 50 miles away because everything was just very normal. People were getting on with life. I remember going out that night and it was just you know, completely full of life. And I remember thinking to myself, like, how how is this place on the verge of falling? I don't understand. Um, and then Friday, you started to see things quieten a little bit. It was very, it was very strange. And that night I went out with some of the commandos and again, they were convinced things weren't going to fall. Um, and then I was going, we, we left at about 2 a.m. and they were supposed to call me at around 6 to go back out to the front line that, the next day on, on that Saturday. And the call never came and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and it didn't happen. But that day was so bizarre. So we went out and yeah, you just saw the, the streets were dead, the shops were closed and you saw people lining up outside the bank just trying to get whatever money they could because everybody was trying to flee to Kabul. Um, and we went to, there's a, a beautiful, a big blue mosque in Mazar and we went there and you just, you saw more people just fleeing from these outside villages and they were in these tiny rickshaws and we were trying to get an interpreter and everyone we knew had left the city and finally got somebody and we're driving and you just see these abandoned buildings and people coming in and, and the cab driver is just, I'm scared. And then the next minute, the, the guy on the phone said, you know, they've broken through the first of these three front lines. And I knew at that point, you know, I couldn't, the earliest commercial flight that I could get back to Kabul wasn't until Monday evening. So how, I thought- How far is that from-, from It's three. about 300 miles. So it's about, uh, you know, if you were to drive, which you couldn't at that point because the Taliban controlled all the roads, but it was a, it's a 12 hour drive. <clears throat> um, and then, yeah, so I went back to my hotel and it was just by that evening we went out and it was just empty. When um, we went to this kebab cafe, my photographer Jake and I, and I just we looked at each other and went, "This is something's wrong here. Like something is about to happen." Um, and so we started to hurry, kind of back to the hotel. And as we're hurrying back, you just the Taliban's just came in on motorcycles and were shooting in the air, and then that was it, really. And and I, I didn't quite know what was happening, and I were on the roof, sort of looking out. It was this glass roof, and you just you just saw hundreds of them pouring in, and and they're all shooting. And I'm on the phone to a friend of mine in London who used to be um, a diplomat in Afghanistan. He he's Afghan, and he's like, "Mazar's just fallen." And I said, "What do you mean it's just fallen?" And he said, "Yeah, it's fallen." And so we sort of had to deal with, uh, "Okay, so now." I, I don't know what this means, but <laughs> I've got to figure it out. And how, how long was this after you'd been there? This was uh, two and a half days. Wow. Yeah. Um, was there a sense from your standpoint that there was a very uh, coordinated effort on the Taliban's part to to move through it the way, say, the United States would in, in a conventional war? Did it seem that organized and, and strategic as far as forces taking certain towns and moving through certain areas? Yeah, I think, again, it comes back to they were, there was certainly the the combat element, but they were cutting deals with local commanders, with local warlords, with local officials. Again, this is where the corruption comes back into play. The Taliban was basically cutting these deals. These people that had cut the deals were then able to leave freely, go leave the country, wherever it was. And you had all these Afghan soldiers that were just left to the slaughter. And that, that really, that really upset me because 
again, it's easy to say they ran away, they did all these things, and I, I, I understand the frustration with that, but they were really sold out. Yeah. And even when, so the Safi, the guy that I'd been out with the night before, the commander who really just really believed in Afghanistan, was a wonderful sort of patriot. And when I finally got back in touch with him, I said, what happened? Are you okay? And you know, he'd fled. And, and he basically said, four o'clock that afternoon, he'd been out fighting, his three bodyguards had been killed. And he just got a call that said, you know, your commander had left. Marshall Dostum's left, everybody's gone. So you can continue to fight or you can actually just run away and save your life. And at that point, it was a losing game. So what were they going to do? So you know, they had to run, really. Yeah. There wasn't an, an alternative for them. They were not going to win. They'd already been sold out. Yeah. I, I want to get into that a little deeper here in just a second, but I want to take one step back. You, you mentioned that the Taliban actually uh, were cutting deals with some of the higher-ups from a corruption standpoint. So I'm curious if if they're kind of, from an undertone standpoint, trying to build up a resistance to the existing government bitching about corruption, but then they're essentially kicking the their campaign off by essentially doing the same thing. Yeah, I mean, essentially. I don't think they have the money to be offering huge amounts of money to them, but certainly able to offer them safety or family safety, yeah. um, things like that that they were able to offer. And I think it just sort of became one of those things where people saw it as inevitable that they were going to take over. So if I have a free passage to get out and take my family with me, I'm going to take it. Would you say that single point of failure-wise, that the the exist at that time the existing Afghan leadership militarily uh, fit that? that box of, of the single point of failure of, of being the reason why it fell so quick is because of that mentality that you're, that you're speaking of? I think so. I think it certainly played a huge part of it. I think Afghans, they were trying to fight for a government that really didn't fight for them. And I think that people joined the military because it was a basic wage in a country that's very poor. I don't think they necessarily had, a lot of them had the conviction to win it was more just a survival tactic to join and and the Taliban really infiltrated that in 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 ways and I think one thing we really saw when the Taliban's came back was that they just the level to which they had already infiltrated every layer of the government of the military they had people people I knew for a long time suddenly came out and said oh yeah I've been 20 20 years a Taliban I'm like, how did I not know this? You used to party with us in Kabul. Like, what is happening here? Um, so I just think they had it in motion for a long time, and they played the long game. Yeah, They played the long game for a long time, and in that final sort of last year or so, that's where they really went for it. And and they're very strategic about it. I think often we, we look at the Taliban as this sort of ragtag mountain militia, but they were very strategic in the way that they, they took the country. Yeah. I mean, from my experience uh, in, in a few different areas of the Middle East, that seems to be a pretty recurring theme of of a, of a mentality that is very, very contrasted from ours that way. Uh, in that, you know, the reflections on even something as far back as the cr- Crusades is, is more relevant to their society as far as how they view us and how they view the world uh, is, is much, much more like millennia based than it is, you know, a couple of years or. Uh, you know, one military campaign to the next, which uh, which it's interesting. You, you would think that 
as many times as we as a nation have learned that lesson that we would remember it, but we, we seem to not, not yeah. do that. Um, and they have this ideological conviction that I found to be fascinating. And again, it goes back to they are, the foot soldiers aren't getting paid. So what happens <clears> is, say, somebody from a family will sponsor that particular person to be in the Taliban. And so all their brothers will, you know, give money to that person. Or So they're very much used to being, you know, going days without food, going days without any kind of comforts. They're, that is not a thing to them. But what they have is this conviction and this this belief that you know Af- Afghanistan must be this Islamic country and, and they have this belief um, that I think is really hard that the Afghan military was never able to replicate yeah. because the Taliban were not doing it for money. They were not doing it for anything other than they believed that they were going to to get back in power and make Afghanistan this Islamic country that they wanted it to be that they felt wasn't happening under the previous government. Was there a mechanism that you saw uh, that, that was the reason why they were, they meaning the Taliban leadership, able to inspire and motivate their their fighters to to be that hardlined? You know how they how do they so do that? So they usually, I mean, most of the the members um, they usually go to a madrasa. So they're when they're kids, right? Yeah, they're they they're lucky to be educated up to, you know sixth ninth grade if they're lucky to go to a normal school then they will go to a madrasa normally and that can be um, either on the afghan side or there's certainly a number of them on the pakistan side of the border and they basically get indoctrinated there and then it's sort of just a rite of passage that you join the taliban once you're you're done with the madrasa so um and they they don't really have an age still don't have an age joining obviously by international law you're supposed to to not be in combat under the age of 18 but um, Taliban, as long as you can grow a beard, you're good to go. Yeah. So wow. that's their... That's I wouldn't have been able to fight till I was 30. <laughs> that's then. their metric. Yeah. Um, so, and the other thing, you know, that I also found, so there was that side of people and that's one of the reasons they joined, but then you had another side of people. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, sort of Siraj Haqqani, who is the, obviously wanted by the US, but he is the uh, Minister of Interior. So his spokesperson is a gay named Kari Hosti. And when I asked Kari Hosti, why did you join the Taliban? And he was quite an educated, spoke very good English. Um, he said, you know, I was going to, uh, I was going to Madrasa. I wasn't a Taliban. Um, I was just very deeply devoted to to my Islamic studies. And he said he was arrested and uh, put in Bagram prison for many years and, and tortured by Afghan forces, he claims. And then, and he said when he had his hearing, you know, there was nobody there that he was able to hire. He wasn't able to hire a lawyer or anyone that kind of represented him. And so the minute he was released from jail, the first thing he did was join the Taliban. Wow. So you also had a lot, I, I found a lot of people that was also the motivating factor for them was something had happened to them. They'd been put in jail. They'd been threatened in some way. And so, they wanted to fight against that. Yeah. Uh, going back to the <clears throat> dropping of weapons and not fighting kind of critique that, that was fairly prevalent, something especially in the, um, the veteran community that, especially for guys that, you know, knew some of, of the fighters that have been there for multiple deployments, you know, even even you, I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective on it from from this standpoint, which is, it's hard to imagine, and I know it's easy to sit here in, in our society when you can drive through Starbucks and you know you slept on a comfortable bed with heater, air conditioning on, and and what have you, all the all the creature comforts that most people take for granted and don't even realize are are something they should appreciate. But 
it's a lot easier to sit in that environment and say, why didn't you fight? Uh, and I certainly am not naive to, to that. However, you know, having been, having spent a fair bit of time in the Middle East and a lot of different places myself, I still have a hard time wrapping my head around putting myself in that, that position here where I, I just can't imagine not saying, you know what, if I die, so be it, you know, but I, like I, I refuse to live in a country that, that is my home, you know, where, where I'm being dictated to by, you know, some extremist government that is going to do these things to me that I'm just not going to, I'm not going to live with literally, you know, um, I, I, I try to wrap my mind around where, where they're at. I get being sold out. I, I still think, or I like to think, you know, maybe I'm giving myself too much credit. I don't know, but I feel like in that same scenario here, I would still be a masked gunman running around causing as much trouble as possible, uh, until the, the very bitter end kind of no matter what, but um, and, and there's been some pretty harsh criticism from a lot of guys in the veteran community. It's, and it's interesting because some are very critical of, of Afghanis and others are very empathetic mm-hmm. to the point where they're even going over there trying to help help get them out. And I don't know why there's such a, a contrast that way, but I'm curious to get your take on that. I certainly, yeah, I certainly see the frustrations. Um, and I really think for many years the Afghan forces – I mean, the number of people that, the soldiers that died, they won't even release the death count because yeah. it's just so high. I'm sure it's hundreds of yeah, thousands, right? Just, I mean. it's, so I think for a long time, <clears throat> they did try. I just, it just, I don't know why, but they never got to that point of the fight or die. There was few of them. Whereas the Taliban have that. They have the yeah. fight. Or, it's a, it's a, they begging to be suicide bombers because they see that as, as um, you know, being a heroic thing. But the Afghan forces just never got to that point where they, I think toward the end of it, they just viewed the loss as inevitable. And so they could either die fighting or they can try to save their own life and run. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast. With first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. Um, And I just think they never got to that point in a mentality sense. I just think, again... Are you fighting for a government that doesn't fight for you? Yeah. And how how hard is it to to reach that point where you are willing to give up your life for for that? And I just think the, the patriotism just was never quite there. Yeah. Um, and I think that again, people just sort of joined for that that basic salary, um, but the will to to fight it just didn't carry through to the end. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> all right. So. Back to kind of your your chronological timeline of being there. A couple of days in, 
you watch that city fall basically where did you go after that and so i was sort of trapped in the in the hotel for a while which wasn't wasn't completely fun at that point we really didn't have any idea how the taliban was going to respond to foreigners to journalists to a woman and and so it was this very much this unknown and the only taliban that <coughs> i guess i really knew was the insurgent taliban um so yeah, it was a, it was a certainly an uncomfortable um, it was an uncomfortable time because we just we didn't know and and we didn't have the contacts everybody had left to kind of be able to to go and directly speak to them and at the time Kabul had fallen the next day so resources were completely shifted uh, to that to what was happening there and so we were sort of very much on our own and trying to figure out just how to get back there was obviously no commercial flights um, the road wasn't we didn't you know wasn't safe at that point to 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 make a road journey which is about 12 hours which I did do later but um at that at that point things were very unknown and very chaotic and um and Mazar is around it's about an hour and a half from the Uzbekistan border so um we just really had to come to the conclusion that that the only way to to get out was to to talk to the Taliban and and so it, it took it sort of took a few days and we were running out of food at that point in the hotel. And I really just felt bad because you had these staff, these you know wonderful people that were staying for us, really, and staying to kind of take care of us. And, and the Taliban was just constantly trying to get in downstairs. And, I, and again, we just didn't know how they were going to respond. And so you had them trying to get in all the time. And, and, and we just knew that where, however we did it, we had to get out. And, and that seemed to be really the most logical thing to do. So when you, when you say we, what was the group that you were... Just my photographer and I. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and so when you say the Taliban was trying to get in, I mean, if, if they want, I'm assuming if they wanted to get in there, like the hotel staff isn't going to physically be able to keep them. Right. So we had a couple of guards that used to... Because the, the hotel, there was a bank underneath the hotel. So um, they had a couple of guards at the front. And so immediately that night that the Taliban took over, they, um, they, you know, they used to wear camouflage and they got rid of their guns they hid their guns away and then you know just changed into afghan dress um and just you know what every day we'd go down and they would say oh the, you know, the talibans came back again last night and they tried to get in and, and it wasn't clear whether they were trying to get into the bank whether they were trying to get into the hotel it just it wasn't clear but the guards were sort of able to convince them to go away and say nobody's here and then at one point the manager of the hotel or the owner Got, one of the staff members put him on the phone to me and he said, you know, I talked to the Taliban. They've promised not to enter the hotel. Not that they sort of <laughs> agreed to that, but it gave me some sort of level of yeah. of like, okay, I think I'm, I'll be okay for, for another few hours. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess it was just, it was very unknown. And then, you know, in the end, when I was talking to somebody in the State Department in Kabul and I just said to him, I said, I think I'm just going to go talk to the Taliban. And to my surprise, he didn't argue. He went, it's a possibility you could do that. Um, and I think at that point, because the U.S. had dialogue in Doha with the Taliban, it wasn't as completely outlandish as, as it sort of sounds. Yeah. So how did you go about? So it, it kind of happened really quickly. So we were like, do we go back to Kabul? Do we take this risk and do this drive? Do we hire a driver? Do we go to Uzbekistan? And then I, um, I had some help which it kind of didn't unfold and until afterwards and I really sort of put the picture together. But uh, one of the uh, US diplomats um, had helped me get in contact with the Uzbek consulate, which was closed in Mazar, but, um, but they were willing to kind of help us get to the border, which was closed. So um, 
a business, a local business person just called and said, I need you to be in the hotel lobby, ready to go in half an hour. Um, and so he was sort of our middle person and he was able to arrange for the Taliban elders to come to the hotel to pick us up. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was very quickly. And so we just sort of packed our stuff up and I wasn't really even sure what was happening. Um, and then I go into the parking lot downstairs and the Taliban elders are there and How did that, getting into their car. Yeah. What, uh, <laughs> what was it like a, a car, a van? or what? Yeah, it was just a Toyota Corolla. Just what everybody has in Afghanistan, yeah. a Toyota Corolla. So you jump in and then what? So I jump in and um, I, and the Taliban, <laughs> the Taliban are like welcome. And they one of them was the co- cousin of the governor, who shadow governor for a long time. Suddenly the governor and he says the governor welcomes you and wishes he could be here, but he's a bit busy today. And I'm thinking to myself, this is so bizarre. Um, but I was very transparent. I said, you know, I'm a journalist. Can I interview you? So we're driving around Mazar and they said, sure. So I'm asking them, you know, what about their interpretation of Islamic law and they're telling me about cutting people's hands off and and um, stoning people for infidelity and if you murder someone, you should, if it's intentional, you're going to get hung and and they're saying this all with a big smile on their face and, and then at the same time telling me, you know, welcome, you're welcome to stay and it was just, it was this very fascinating contrast of yeah. of what was happening and then and then we went to the Uzbek consulate and they were lovely and 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 um and they said oh you know we'll drive you to the border so we went and then we had a, a, a Taliban escort to the border because we had to be able to get through the checkpoints without problems um so we had this sort of young Taliban group that took us and and again, that was, you know, you had the complete opposite. So you had these these guys that had just acquired their American uh, weapons and were taking selfies at the same time. And it was just, it was very bizarre experience. Yeah. And what, yeah. What were you wearing? I was just wearing a hijab you? and I wore a mask. Okay. And but yeah. It, it, I, was I, that a kind of a dictated thing or you just knew that? Um, I mean, I had a burqa, <clears throat> but I refused to wear it. I... Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't. A, I mean, you always wear a hijab in Afghanistan, but um, yeah, I refused to wear anything that was beyond that because, yeah. uh, again, it's, it wasn't necessary. I didn't think, and, and nothing was really said to me. Yeah, you mentioned you wore a mask, like a a COVID mask kind of mask. Yeah, I wore a mask. Yeah. Um, just because I felt at first in certain situations I wore a mask, not that often, but I wore them sometimes because. I think it made people open up to me a little bit more when I was interviewing Taliban. They felt a little bit more comfortable when I had a mask on and they could just only see my eyes. Um, I tried to avoid wearing it as much as possible, but if I felt that I was going to be beneficial to the interview, I, I did that. Yeah. There's an interesting, I think, uh, element to the, the reason why they require women to wear face coverings uh, and and kind of the the weird not to get too far off on a tangent, but the, the kind of the weird uh, transition that our country has gone through that way where people have gotten so used to it to where now they almost feel uncomfortable without it in, yeah. in some cases. But, or even in your cases that, you know, they feel more comfortable talking to you without it. There's a weird... And not because of COVID. There's r- no right. COVID in Afghanistan. Well, yeah, but yeah, because yeah, of just... Yeah, I have that written yeah, down the distraction. Too. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, there's a, there's a strange dynamic to that that... Uh, that you, you see, I think, uh, kind of creeping into our society with, with some of this mass stuff, which is, which is alarming to me. But, mm-hmm. 
that is one of the questions I actually had was, I mean, is, is COVID even something that people mention? Like, is there nope. not? I think initially they had a bit of a, you know, back in, in sort of the spring of 2020, when we all were dealing with the beginning of COVID, they had a, a number of deaths and things. But after that, it was, um, it's not talked about. You yeah. don't. Strangely enough, you do see Taliban wearing pretty much they're the only ones. You'll see a bunch of them riding around in their cars wearing the masks. Really? Whereas in normal, I think, That's I weird. don't even, I don't think it's anything to do with COVID. I think they just, yeah. <laughs> they think they, they look tough or something yeah. with a mask on. I really don't think. With a baby I, blue mask on. Yeah, yeah. So I think, I think, yeah, that was yeah. a bizarre thing. But there was sort of a running joke um, where sort of someone had said to, to one of the Haqqanis, even COVID ran away from you, yeah. you know, because just there isn't COVID there. And, yeah. and I could argue, I think people in Afghanistan have very strong immune systems. I think you're exposed to a lot when you're there. I mean, it's an open, open sewage system. So therefore you're going to, you know, be exposed to, you have to build up that immune system pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, you don't see overweight people too much in Afghanistan. Um, certainly it's a different diet and lifestyle. And I just, I really don't think, Afghans have been afflicted by COVID the way other countries have. Yeah. It's an interesting uh, dynamic that way and how how much of it is allowing it to to impact your society versus how much it it actually does. We could spend a whole whole episode on that. I won't take uh, any more of that, the the time of... of, And they just have bigger things to worry about. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so same thing with like a lot of the other social issues that you see here that aren't issues there because they have way more important shit to worry about. And I think I've talked about this, I mean, I don't know how many times on different episodes with different guests, but you know, I, I do think we're, we're a victim of our own success that way. And that we've been so, so sheltered, comfortable and successful for so long that now human beings, there's an element of, of being meant to struggle uh, and to need something to persevere over, to give yourself purposes that we have, uh, invented things to uh, to make make us feel that way, which uh, yeah, I agree. I think yeah. people people often lead you know, fairly meaningless lives, and people are always looking for some sort of deeper meaning in their life. So, therefore, problems that don't really exist are created and blown yeah. up into these these big things because people are looking for that yeah. that struggle, that meaning, that that yeah. purpose of something. And and often when I tell Afghans about some of the issues that, that are, are very prevalent in the United States, it's, it's very confusing for them. Like, what imagine. are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> How is this a problem? And yeah, yeah. I can imagine. Um, <clears throat> all right. So once you, uh, you know, got driving around with these guys and, and you're interviewing and, and things of that nature, uh, did that open any, any other doors in terms of where you could go or where you did go or what, what happened? So what there? happened was we went to, um, so initially everything was sort of happening in Kabul. We went to, uh, the Uzbek border. Uh, we stayed there for a little while and then, uh, I kind of wanted to let the, the chaos that was happening in Kabul die down a little bit. Um, I had some work to do in, in Dushanbe and Tajikistan as well. So I went there and then drove back to the Uzbekistan border and decided that you know the day that americans were leaving for the last time that i was going to drive back so i literally walked over the bridge back into afghanistan and we hired a driver to drive us uh, from heratan which is the border border town back down to kabul which is a really heinous 12-hour drive but um yeah i i wanted to do that and i it's, it sounds crazy to be always trying to get back into a country that everyone else is trying to leave but i felt that it was an important part of history and that 
it was important to be there and to witness it and to, to not leave. Yeah. Um, what does a road trip like that, I mean, what, what is that like? I mean, you're not stopping at 7-Eleven and grabbing snacks before you get on the road, right? Yeah, I mean, what, I mean, like, I mean and again, you know, that time of the year too, it was so hot. Um, we were sort of all shoved into, again, Toyota Corolla. There was a bunch of us in there and, uh, yeah, we drove all the way through and you just, you got a really great view of, of Afghanistan and some of the smaller areas and, uh yeah, it was it was really fascinating. You see, also again, you see the corruption when you get to something like the Salang Pass, which is a, a very strategic road, um, a couple of hours sort of north of Kabul, and it's just being the amount of money that's spent on a project like that. But then, what happens is somebody gets the contract, who then subcontracts, who then someone else uses cheap materials, and then it's never finished and it's never <coughs> fixed, and the trucks, which are always incredibly overloaded. They immediately just erode the, and you think you know we we paid hundreds of millions of dollars for this road as U.S. taxpayers and and look at it, yeah. and you know you're crawling through it. So it, it you look at Google Maps and it should be a journey that takes six or seven hours, but you know in reality it's going to take double that because of the the just the situation. Yeah, from a a transportation standpoint, obviously the roads are are hit and miss, but. What about like gas stations and, and cell coverage and things like that? Yeah, I mean, trip? you certainly, it's spotty, but you can uh, you can get that in when you get to you know, bigger towns. Um, I didn't have, what I would do is usually just connect to someone else's hotspot yeah. because my, my international data plan for probably a number of reasons didn't cover Afghanistan. But usually we just, uh, we have like a hotspot. So I had a burner phone and I just set up a hotspot on that phone oh, okay. um, with, an, with a local SIM card so that I was able to be connected all the time. you have any luck uh, with either sat phones or sat uh, hotspots using that technology? I mean, we have them, but I, again, because of the cost, we, I, I only have them for an emergency situation yeah. if I really needed it. So yeah. other than that, yeah, the, yeah, once you get these uh, hotspots set up, which are pretty common there, it's, it's easy to yeah. kind of use. Um, black market-wise, uh, while you're there, uh, especially when the Taliban takes back over, is there an element of guys running around selling shit they're not supposed to, or, or like is a There's lot of always business? been an element of that in Afghanistan? Obviously, it's always been a, a big market for that, and and you, I mean, you go to the grocery store and. It's just all this shit stolen from the base. Like there's yeah. the black rifle coffee. There's the, you know, just everything you can find. It's just uh, everything classic. you know was stolen from. And this is yeah. the regular grocery yeah. store. Um, and then you have special sort of stores that are set up, military stores that are set up, um, which were obviously really popular, you know, during when, and not just for military people, but you contractors and all embassy security, everybody would go there to get, get their stuff and you could buy things really cheap um so they sort of still there but again it was just everything stolen from from bases and there's yeah. actually a place called it's called was called bush bazaar named after george w bush and it was just it's this big bazaar the, <coughs> the taliban renamed it the mujahideen bazaar but it's just everything you can imagine stolen from every base you've yeah. got um just <laughs> expired food yeah. uh supplements anything and it was kind of funny um you had you had one guy that was working there and he was a like a bodybuilder and he was selling supplements that were clearly stolen and the Taliban walks into the store and he's telling the Taliban, you, you're too skinny, you need to come to my gym and work out. <laughs> and then the guys are, oh, okay, okay. And then he says, just 
He says he does this every day. He says, oh, I saw somebody suspicious around the corner. You better go get them. The Taliban says, where? And then they get their guns and start running and I look and he says, oh, we do this every day. <laughs> so I think some people certainly have a sense of humor. But uh, but yeah, that stuff is everywhere. You have also at some of these places and a lot of the guys, because they hate the Taliban, hid a lot of their great stuff um, behind the, the counter. Otherwise, the Taliban, who doesn't know the value of something, will just come in and say, I want this thermal scope. Um, but yeah, you can, you could, if you want, wanted to you can go and buy yeah something like a, a scope that would be worth uh, thousands of dollars for a couple of hundred dollars really yeah or, or uh in that same vein are are drugs and and illicit things like that also pretty prevalent in that same i, vein? I mean afghan afghanistan exports more than 90 percent of the world's heroin really so the poppy fields and the opium and everything are very much still running even though the taliban says we're going to outlaw it it's haram it's money for them. Yeah. You know, so I, I think the way that they view it is if you're selling it overseas, it's okay. Just don't sell it to Afghans. Oh, okay. Is, uh, is heroin an issue for huge for Afghan? A lot of them are on huge. it. Really? It's got huge, huge addiction problems. Yeah. Um, I, and what the Taliban was doing was they were taking a lot of people off the streets and putting them in jail. So I went to a jail in Kandahar where they put a lot of the addicts that were there, I guess, cause they don't have formal detox facilities so they just put them in this jail um to, to i guess detox and uh you know it was sad there were kids you know boys as, as young as as 13 that were there and you see these cycles that happen through families so the father might be addicted and then sends his son out to pick up the drugs for him and then the son gets addicted and it's a it's a it's a it's a big problem it's a vicious cycle would you say percentage-wise per capita it's on the level that it is here or less or more Ah. Uh, I would say it is here at least, if not really? more. Wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess it stands to reason if it's coming from there, it's probably yeah, cheap it's, and as readily available as as well yeah. the, the most of, of anywhere on the planet. But I guess I, I just would have assumed with the with the stigma attached to it, you know, with how, how strict they are on so many things that maybe it wouldn't be as big of a problem. But uh, No, I think it, again, especially in those poorer societies, it's an it escape. has become a big problem. Sure. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> all right, so you make your your twelve hour journey down towards Kabul. Do you make it back to Kabul at that point? Yeah, we do. We do that night. Yeah, yeah. we and get in and and. So what what happened then? We go back to the house where we'd left all our stuff. So you know, when I'd left to to go to Mazar, because I only thought that I would be there for a few days. Um, all my you know, I'd left all my stuff in in Kabul. So yeah, we're able to go back. Um, and I remember going out that sort of that first next morning to the grocery store and you just see the Taliban is on every sort of street corner and this fruit seller is just like, what are you doing? Aren't you scared? And we're sort of like, not really, you know. I felt fairly confident that it was going to be okay. Even though everybody had left, I felt confident it would be okay. I still had a few British friends of mine that had stayed. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I just, I wasn't as alarmed as as the media perhaps wanted me to be or portrayed it as. Yeah. Are, were there times where you were legitimately frightened for your life while while you were there? Um, I don't. I wouldn't say frightened for my life. There were certainly situations where I felt I felt very uncomfortable. Um, I think one particular assignment that I did was going into Chapagar, which is an area in Nanganhar. It's just outside of Jalalabad. That's the ISIS area. It's ISIS controlled. Um, so that was certainly 
that was certainly an uncomfortable experience, something I felt was important to do, to go into that territory to understand exactly what was happening because that's really where they plan a lot of their operations, things like what happened at the at the airport where the, uh, the 13 American servicemen and women were killed as well as 180 Afghans. That's sort of the, the base of operations for ISIS in Afghanistan and I felt that it was important to sort of get a, a better understanding of what was happening. So that was uncomfortable. Um, I got detained once uh, in Spinboldak, which is uh, in Kandahar. It's sort of the crossing into in, to Quetta in Pakistan and and uh, I've, I, that wasn't the most pleasant experience either, but I think... Why were you detained? I didn't even know, really. So we were doing interviews, and you just you got. Mo- I just got mobbed. So everywhere I went, it's just hundreds of people that were just. They just surround you, and they see a foreigner, they see a camera, and that obviously attracted the atta- attention of the Taliban, who were riding around, and then they. Um, uh, we were kind of there, and the Taliban was like, "Get into." The, vehicle, the police vehicle, and I said, no, my driver's coming. Um, my driver, Shafiq, we couldn't get hold of him. He'd gone off to eat. He's always eating. Um, <laughs> so he, we couldn't get hold of Shafiq, and so I was with Naweed, my fixer, and a fixer is somebody we as journalists always have in, in places. Um, they kind of locals that help facilitate interviews often interpret, um, and they're just, I guess, like producers really. And so uh, we were trying to get hold of Shafiq. He wasn't picking up the phone. He wasn't where he dropped us off and so the Taliban basically just forced me into their police vehicle and took us to the police station and we got detained there and they accused us of being spies which is unfortunately a tag that journalists get tagged accused of a lot um even when I gave them all my paperwork I had a letter from uh Zabiola Mujahid who's the Taliban spokesperson and when you when you arrive back in the country you have to go to the ministry and get a specific letter from the Taliban that basically you just wave at checkpoints that allows you to go through and it, it just verifies that you're a press person. How, how would a checkpoint verify the authenticity of that? Oh, that's also another struggle because <laughs> a lot of them can't read. Yeah. They can't read the letter. It's in <clears throat> Pashto and they, they can't read it. Um, so most of the time being a woman really helps because yeah. yeah, they don't want to question a woman. They just say go, go, go. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's, there were a few situations we'd, we'd sort of get in arguments with them, but but most of the time they were they were fairly accepting of it. Um, I think initially they just had never seen it and didn't know, but I think they probably got a lot more used to it as, as time went on. Um, so, yeah, so we were detained for a while there. Even when I was giving them my passports, my press cards, the letter, um, they just said, this is all fake. I was like, oh, I don't know what to tell you. I'm, t- I'm showing you my credentials. It's not fake. Um, so it just, it took a bit, it took a bit of time for them to, to be able to kind of verify everything and um, yeah, just an unpleasant experience. I, I, then at that point they let you go after what a few hours? They did hours let us or? go afterwards and they were very apologetic and they said, you know, they'd give us special access to that border area and, and, uh, and take us to that place. So I was, I was lucky because I certainly, you know, unfortunately I have friends there now that, that just after I left, um, where I can't say too much about it, but we are arrested and and we are unable to locate them at this point. So, oh, really? Uh, yeah, like, Westerners. Um, so, you know, I think that's also part of the reason I, I knew the right timing to get out. But, yeah, it can really just happen to anyone. And when you're accused of that, it's it's hard to, to have any other leverage to... to so, I mean, so back. these are actual colleagues of yours that are 
missing there right now? Yeah, well, um, yeah, they're <coughs> friends of good friends of ours that we spent a lot of time with there and extremely um, versed in Afghanistan. One of them is just, you know, he's been living on and off there since the Soviet days um, and he's really my go-to for any Afghan questions. Like, what about this? What about this history? He just knows knows everything about it inside out, back to front and and, and I I'm not even really clear what happened because um, they seemed to, you know, things were going fine for, they were on a research project and it was all fine. I saw them the night before I left and then I kind of got a call a week later to say that they'd been arrested and and at this point, yeah, we haven't even been able to kind of locate which uh, facility that they're even in. So so they've been MIA for close to a month? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a worry, eh? Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty dicey. Yeah. Um. All right, so when you um, you get back to Kabul and uh, you go up into did you go up into that ISIS region uh, short shortly after that? No, that wasn't not something I did. I actually interviewed some some uh, some ISIS members in Kuna province. Um, that I did that that mean about a month into it, I think a month into being back, and then to go into the actual ISIS area, I didn't do that until. Uh, a couple of weeks before I left. Okay. So that was in November. Do the, do they use the the K designation or is that something that we They use the K designation, but they don't really call themselves anything. It's really just dash. Yeah. Which is a derogatory term, just yeah. a general term, but the Taliban refuses to basically even acknowledge that the dash exists. Um, they want to pretend that they have this complete, you know, up uh, best security ever and and so they don't even like the idea of you mentioning. Yeah the Dash or ISIS, and, and they'll always tell me, don't do any stories on ISIS. I'm like, you're not going to tell me what stories I can do. But they're very concerned about their reputation and wanting to be seen as, as the, the peacekeepers. But it's a, it's a problem. It's a big problem. Do you know ballpark what the how many numbers of ISIS Pre- guys are? Uh, previous estimates, I think, have been about two to 3,000, um, and that was around 2017. And then 2019, the Afghan government came out and said that the Dash was defeated in Afghanistan. Subjective. But I think at that point it was reduced to just a couple of hundred. But since the uh, the withdrawal, and, and they've all been let out of jail. That's also the problem is that, and the ones that I interviewed, they're all in Bagram. And they'd suddenly been released from jail just during that chaotic withdrawal. Um, I think in some cases the Taliban you know, may have you know, extended that general amnesty to them. In other cases, just they were able to escape because of that. The the Afghan guards had left, and before that, the vacuum came in where the Taliban came came in. There was that period where they were able to kind of just walk out. So now you're dealing with hundreds, if not thousands, more ISIS K fighters who have been in prison for the last few years, who are now you know, back into the fold and and. And it's it's a it's a big problem. I mean, when I was there, it was just it was almost daily attacks that were happening. Do you do you know why the uh, I guess the break off from the Taliban? I mean, to I think to most of us, we would look at them. It's kind of like you guys seem like you're mm-hmm. you're largely on the same side. What like what do you have to fight about? You know, type of yeah. thing. And they have very different ideologies. The the Taliban is very Afghan centric. It doesn't have any great desire to extend its law or its rule beyond Afghanistan's borders. It very much sees, um, you know, it just wants to see Afghanistan as an Islamic, as Islamic state, and it doesn't, it doesn't really particularly care 
what happens in in other places whereas ISIS obviously has a much more global ideology, much more, say, like Al-Qaeda, which it wants to see this global caliphate and it doesn't sort of recognise these borders. So they do have a very different mentality, I guess, in that way. Um, I think for a lot of them, they joined because they didn't see the Taliban as extreme enough. So one of them that I interviewed said to me, um, you know, they they wrote in the media that the Taliban controls 80% of the country. This was prior to the fall, which... We all read, you know, supposedly the Taliban is controlling a large part of the country. And he said, well, why weren't they implementing uh, Sharia law in these places? Why weren't they – they weren't cutting off enough hands. They weren't stoning enough people. They weren't, um, you know, hanging enough people. And supposedly they control all these areas and they weren't doing enough. So I think a lot of them were just motivated because they wanted even more uh, a sort of extremity than, than what was happening and were very determined that they wanted to live – like the prophet in the era of the prophet and they felt that the Taliban were not doing enough to to support that viewpoint. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, uh, I guess I would think or or maybe it's because of the difficulties that they had in Iraq and Syria once uh you know, once Trump came into office and really kind of swept through there is there a an understanding that they kind of fled to to Afghanistan as I think there's there is a cadre of foreign fighters from different places. I don't think it's super huge, but I, I certainly think that they do have do have some foreign flight, f- foreign fighters that that left for there. But majority are Afghans, and again, the ISIS was was formed out of um, you know it was really a Taliban leader that that as it always seems to be in this part of the world, it's a Taliban leader who got in a fight with another Taliban leader and then he's the one who sort of went off in 2015 and um, pledged allegiance to Baghdadi and formed the affiliate in Afghanistan. Um, The Taliban itself is a break-off, you know, of the Mujahideen. So it's just everything there, it becomes this power struggle that prompts somebody to go and start something else and, and that is probably... My biggest concern for Afghanistan now is even within the Taliban, the amount of infighting, at what point does that mean someone else is going to break off and start something else? Yeah, yeah. I guess that, that is the one thing maybe we take for granted here, even with as much as we argue and not get along, there's still a method to the madness mm. to a certain extent, uh, government structure-wise and, and order-wise. But um, <clears throat> So when were you in Kabul during the period of the crazy mass evacuations uh, no i was in the north then okay. so yeah i uh, so you didn't really get a feel for what it was like not uh, really other than yeah i just I, I didn't think at that point it to get back to Kabul, it wouldn't have served me at that point judy was boring hello then judy discovered chumbacasino.com it's my little escape now judy's the life of the party oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon whoa take it easy judy <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast. With first-hand witnessed accounts of the strange and unexplained covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon.
as much as you know, I would have been very fascinated to to sort of see that. Yeah. But I think at that point it was it was better for me to wait and and to go back in when that was done. Were you able to, uh, from a, a communication standpoint, have a good idea of what was going on? Like, do you have absolutely? You I was in super regular contact with people. Um, that was sort of trying to get through there every day. And it, it was honestly, it was madness. And when I see the people that, people who had SIV visas, who could just never get to the gate. They could never get to the gate to, to, to get out, even though they had the paperwork. And it wasn't even about, it wasn't even that they were being stopped. It was just they physically could not get there or they were being turned away. Or And I, and I question the rhyme or reason. I know people that got on those evacuation flights that are now in the United States that were on United States ban lists Mm -hmm. and not for any egregious sort of security issue, but because they, they did, you know, graffiti and things like that to, to us kind of buildings, (coughs) but they never served is they never supported the United States in, in that capacity. And so I just, I question, well, how is it that these particular people, um, were able to to get safe passage out when there are many people who who really did you know support the U.S. war effort there who have a, a very genuine need to leave who who just simply still can't leave. So I think um, th- th- there was really a, a no rhyme or reason to a lot of it as it was happening. It just became this this complete kind of it was very much a lucky draw if you were able to get in, yeah. and if you were able to be that person to sort of push your way to the front and get on those planes, it's, it's also questionable. And, and, and again, you go back to the thought of why were there so many military age men on those planes? You yeah. know, where were the women and children who are often the ones who are going to suffer the, the most from, yeah. from what's happening? And, and you, you, you can't help but question, you know, if so many of these military age men are leaving, is there, you know, if there is ever a resistance or if there is ever, um, an opportunity to to take back that palace who's going to be left to do it no i i agree i i found myself you know thinking that same thing and seeing a lot of these flight uh you know videos of, of uh, the evacuations i am curious do you do you have an understanding of what the process was vetting wise that was being used at those airports when when Afghanis were being evacuated? I don't think there was a huge rhyme or reason to it. I can't imagine how they were able to do any adequate vetting. Um, I think a couple of months earlier, the the embassies had tried to kind of open a system, but it's very difficult there. I mean, people have the difficult naming system. It's difficult just people don't have documents. People don't have all these sort of IDs. And so... I don't really know how you're supposed to to vet people properly. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how you physically do that. Um, and certainly, a lot of people I know who left didn't didn't uh, didn't qualify for for anything. So either you were using fake documents, or nobody really asked you for it. Yeah. What What do you think should be done with um, the? I mean, because it's at this point, I think it's a couple hundred thousand people that have been evacuated, and a number of which are here. What are, what are your thoughts on what we as a country should do with the evacuees that are here now? Uh, I mean, I, you know, you're here now and I, and I always support you know, people that I think it's a very difficult thing to leave a country. I think sometimes we, we don't always sort of see that, that side of it. And so I, I think as Americans, you know, we want them to be, um, you know, to make a positive contribution to our country and, and to support 
support our way of life in in that way and 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 be able to to be a positive part in society i think that's always it's always a challenge when you're a refugee and and one of the arguments the taliban uses when especially in the beginning when people said well why are you blocking all these people from leaving and uh sohil shaheen i remember him saying because when they go to these other countries you have doctors you have teachers you have lawyers they're going to become cab drivers they're going to work in a grocery store and yet here they are with the ability to be um you know very positive people in society and so his argument was well they need we need these people in afghanistan we don't need them driving an uber in a another country um so yeah i think that's always just a challenge when when you are a refugee and i think a lot of people in the in the heat the afghans in the heat of the moment who just wanted to leave you know i kept warning them even friends of mine that were trying to leave i said going to get to this other country and it's not going to be easy it's not easy coming to the united states nobody's going to be there you know with a thousand handouts for you um it's hard and you you're leaving a life behind so just really think about that decision before you make it think about i know it's tough right now but but what i found is people were people want to leave not necessarily because of the taliban i'm sure you know it is a factor but it's the economy it's the humanitarian situation yeah. So that is the the driver for people wanting to leave, not necessarily um, because of the security situation. Sure, would uh, would a Madam President McKay give them uh, U.S. citizenship and just let them? I think it really depends on the individual. Again, I I I never see anything good coming out of mass migration, and and any of the conflicts I've ever covered in my life, I never see. I just never see anything hugely positive. I think certainly um, migration, I mean, as an immigrant myself, I think migration is incredibly important to to any society. But in mass numbers, I don't think, I don't think it, you know, it always serves them well. Um, but certainly if their life is, is in extreme risk, it, it, you know, we have an obligation in that way. But I think whatever can be done for people to be able to stay in their homes that is most important, and I I want to see again if we can address some of the economic, the humanitarian concerns, the employment concerns, things like that that are all happening in Afghanistan. That is why people are trying to leave. Um, I think if we can address or, or play some sort of positive part in in that um, and having people stay in their homes, I always think that is going to be a better long term outcome than just hundreds if not millions of people fleeing and and afghanistan does need good people to stay there it needs doctors it needs lawyers and the taliban needs to allow women to work and to go to school and to to be functioning people in society and and so they have a a lot to learn in that respect but but whatever we can do for for people to to live safely in their homes is to me always going to be um, a better option yeah no i agree did you see a, a big shift uh, specifically as it relates to women in that uh, avenue of, okay, now you can't do this, you can't, like, was Yeah, there- and it did. It was unfortunate because one of the first things the Taliban did was they they shut down the, the public schools for high school and um, in some cases the universities. Uh, most of these places <coughs> were gender segregated anyway. One of the things they mandated was that 
had to be strict separation between men and women. A lot of the times that happened anyway, so it wasn't that big of a shift. Um, the private schools were still running or are still running, same with the universities, but the Taliban shut down the public system for girls and and then they sort of opened it up in a couple of provinces and then closed it again. So that's been a really, really concerning shame because now we're going on four or five months where girls have missed this critical part in, in of their education and the Taliban keeps saying whenever you bring it up they keep saying oh we, we support girls education but we want to make sure that it's it's it follows Islamic law not um not sort of this western influence they keep using the same excuse so it's it's very unclear to me why they're continuing with that and then in addition to that I think a lot of the women who were in the workforce um were either unable to go to their jobs or there was also a lot of just self-censorship happening where people were suddenly too scared to go out um, or their jobs didn't exist anymore. And so you sort of saw a lot of the women that were in the workforce previously that were suddenly at home. Yeah. So as a a hypothetical, an 18-year-old Afghan woman who basically her entire life up until a few months ago, um, let's say in in Kabul or, or in a major city, is her life now compared to six months ago 180 degree different? Yeah, it is. And I think that's really, to me, that's the the saddest part of the whole transition. And that was something, you know, I, I brought up on so many occasions. It was just like, if you had some, you know, if you allow women to, to be part of society, it would make a really big difference. And, and not only within Afghanistan, but on the world stage. And this is one of the big reasons why people loathe you is is because of of this um and so their lives you know girls women are really the ones who do stuff up um so people that especially women that were in sports you know that was a really big thing over the over the 20 years suddenly sports are very much opened up to women you had afghans competing in in taekwondo and football and just all these things and then suddenly that was immediately taken from them because the taliban does not agree with women playing sport um, and so, you know, do they feel the same way about just exercising in general. Like it's be, fine for men, you know, no, they're women, very, though. uh, yeah, it's not really a cultural thing. I mean, there are gyms that have certain hours that women can go to, but yeah, I guess it's, it's not a huge part of the culture. I don't hear too many women talking about it. Um, they have women's parks. So sometimes in the mornings you used to see women walking around parks, um, but, uh, you know, the Taliban also took a lot of those over as well and made life a little bit more difficult. But, uh, yeah, it's just one thing they, they can't wrap their heads around. Yeah. It's confusing to them. Wow. Um, <clears throat> all right, so the, the remainder of your time there, uh, once you got back down to Kabul and kind of the rest of your time there, can you walk us through that? Yeah, so um, so we got back to Kabul, and that was in uh, the very beginning of September. And... I, it was really the first time that we were able to see Afghanistan because a lot of the provinces that had previously, it was just very difficult to get around because of the, the level of danger and because the Taliban controlled so many of the roads and if they didn't control the roads, then they were constantly under fire. So um, you couldn't really drive to a lot of places by car. So suddenly, because a lot of that threat had been eliminated um, because the Taliban was in control, um, that sort of, I, I made it really a point to to go to as many of these areas as possible, uh, whether that was uh, Kandahar, um, which I, I love that place, but it's a, um, it's sort of, I guess, the very, it's sort of where the Taliban was founded, 
when Mullah Omar founded the Taliban. And it's, it's a beautiful, um, it's a beautiful province. And, and Kandahari is a very lovely, sort of fun-loving people. Um, so I, I made it a point of, of going to places like that, to uh, to Bamiyan, which is just stunning. And it's where the Taliban blew up the Buddhas um, in 2001. And then you had places like Herat, um, and, and one of the remote, most remote places is Nuristan. So I really wanted to go there and, and we sort of went through Kunar and, and Korangal and those places there. So it was just fascinating being able to see so many areas and talk to people from so many different walks of life with such different sort of views on what was happening. And, and also each province, you have a very different type of Taliban as well. Um, some of them are a lot more sort of selfist or, or, or um, some of them are a lot more lenient, I guess, in other places. A lot of them are, are much more kind of terrifying. So you sort of get this very different dynamic. Um, and also in that beginning phase, um, we sort of smuggled our way into Pangaea as well because that was really the last resistance point um, where there was a, a still a, a force that were fighting against the Taliban. And that was that was really a prized province because that was the only place that the Taliban were never able to control even in their last reign um, that was the one province that, that that always held out so there was so much back and forth on the internet about has it fallen has it not fallen who was controlling it um, and it was very hard to get an accurate picture and so we we sort of were able to to kind of smuggle our way back in in early September and to I guess try to understand exactly what was happening and who was controlling. Yeah, so a lot of these places were places you'd never been, or they were- um, yeah, a lot of the provinces were places I'd never been. Yeah, did did uh, traveling to all these different places, many of which you've not been to, did that change your overall opinion and perspective on both Afghanistan, the Taliban, and, and where it's at, where it's headed? Um, I think I think it's so easy to forget just how what a beautiful country Afghanistan is. I think so much we we just tend to focus on the the bloodshed that happens there and we forget it's just it's one of the most aesthetically stunning naturally stunning places um that I think I've ever been to. It's just there's there's so many breathtaking parts of it. And so it I like to be able to highlight that too because I think that is is really important to showcase that side of it. Um I wouldn't say it changed my perspective necessarily, but it's certainly, I mean, it's certainly a privilege to be able to go to these places. I, you know, as a foreigner, I I feel very fortunate. I don't know that a lot of Afghans themselves would feel safe or necessarily even be able to to do that. I think the Taliban certainly uh, gives a little bit more leniency to a foreigner than it does to the Afghan people. Similarly. As a journalist, you know, as a foreign journalist, they're not really going to tell me what to do, whereas they will tell an Afghan journalist or, or arrest an Afghan journalist if they do something they don't like, whereas a foreigner is treated as a guest in their country. And, and Afghan culture with Pashtun Wali is very adamant about that's a top priority is to treat a guest well. So one of the ironic things really is that I was able to work and, and operate in Afghanistan safely, relatively safely, um, because of that code, because I was considered to be a guest and someone that was authorized to be there and I, I hadn't you know, snuck in or, or 
anything like that. I'd had a proper visa that was issued under the previous government, but they still honoured it. And um, so I was a guest in their country and, and sort of ironically enough, you can compare that to that's the way they viewed Osama bin Laden back in the, in the 90s. They viewed him as an authorised guest in their country and that was going to be their top priority. So when September 11 happened and George W. Bush said, you know, hand him over or we're coming in, and they said, we're not going to hand over our guest. He's the only one giving us money. And so, you know, henceforth, uh, a war was started. But, it, yeah, it's this sort of very immoral code that they take very seriously. Yeah. That's, uh, that's fascinating for sure. You know, the kind of the ironies that are all all woven, uh, you know, in, in with that. But, uh, you know, on the one hand, you've got a, a female, a foreigner, which you know, under any other circumstance, you know they're they're probably going to put you at the at the bottom of the totem pole, you know. But because you're uh, essentially a mouthpiece for another country and in that that bridge or liaison, information and communication wise, they want to uh, you know protect that and put themselves in the in the best light possible. Which it's just an interesting dynamic. But and they're very scared of interacting with women. Yeah, um, it's very new to them. They've just never it's a very new interaction for them it's just it's so far removed from their culture to have a woman especially working with with men and just to sort of be in the streets they they don't know how to respond and so they're sort of taught as a sign of respect often for most most parts is they they won't look at you they'll look at the ground um because they just don't know what else to do and i i found that by the end they were looking at me a lot more um and that was because i sort of you know made a point to to kind of just stare at, stare at them until they <laughs> looked at me um but but yeah so I, I did see that i did see a big change from the beginning when they literally would not you know they, they were upset about even having to interview with me and when they did interview with me it was always looking at the ground yeah. and then by the end of it i would say majority of them were actually when i walked into a room were surprisingly would actually nod and say hello whereas that yeah. this didn't happen at the beginning yeah it's uh, so weird to be ignored for like a complete month yeah. straight though. It was like yeah. very, I found myself getting really irritated when I would go home. I'd be like, what is wrong with me? And I was like, oh, cause you've been, you've been invisible yeah. for the last month. Yeah. It was like the parent of a teenager, right? Yeah. Um, the, uh, w where was the, the point at which you said, okay, now it's time to leave. Was there a very, like, was there a, a shift or a, mm. a distinct yeah, uh, thing that happened that made you say I that had to, I, I, I mean, I did have an obligation that I'd, I'd put off of several obligations. I did have an obligation in, in December that I needed to be back for in New York. So that was sort of a marker for me, okay, it's time to go. But I did, up until that point, definitely start to feel things were getting a lot more authoritarian. The bizarre thing with the Taliban was that, especially for that first month after they took power, it was, you could walk into a ministry, you could walk into the, you know, and there was barely, I would never get checked at security. You didn't have to go through super layers of permission the way that you had to previously to get an interview. You had to write letters and do this and get permission. Whereas the Taliban were just, I literally walked up to a suicide bombing school and knocked on the gate and said, yeah. oh, hi, I'd like <clears throat> to come in. Um, and they let me in. So it was this weird sort of freedom at first. If there, and was, then, a if there was a doorbell, uh, would you Oh, have you know, it was it? in a kindergarten. <laughs> They'd taken over a kindergarten oh, and to train their suicide bombers. Yeah. I'd be um, hesitant to knock. So I literally, so we knock and I walk in and there's 
stuffed toys in the front. I was like, this is just creepy. Um, Were you there to interview? uh, Yeah. Did you get the interview? Yeah. Yeah. They were very hospitable about us coming in and, and it was a a special command. It was called the Badgery Command and they train their suicide bombers at this kindergarten. Um, And that's one thing that the Taliban is very adamant that they're not getting rid of, even though they are a government now, they're still very um, bent on having these suicide trained ready to go suicide bombers when so in terms of interviewing them to to try to you know force their hand from a justification standpoint what was their response they just see it as they've you know that to them is to them suicide bombing was or is a tactic that they use because they they did not have say during the insurgency they did not have access to air power and to the things that the U.S. military has. So to them, suicide bombing was that equivalent tactic of being able to level the playing field. Level the playing field a lot because they knew that obviously yeah. the U.S. or the Afghan forces were not going to, to have that. So that was their their <coughs> tactic, and they see it as this very they see it as this very esteemed thing. It's literally the highest highest level of respect you can earn is to be a suicide bomber their supreme leader Haibatullah, his one of his sons was a suicide bomber and that's just why the the taliban reveres him because they see well you know he gave up his son and they see it as this the hikanis did a big festival while we were there celebrating suicide bombers and, and offering the families money and and land because there's just there's no higher higher um thing to do in in to them than to to be a suicide bomber and they have these kids that are just begging they're begging to be suicide bombers wow. um, uh, so I'm, I'm assuming then not just with him but with any family where a suicide bomber comes from that family it's like a, yeah. a status thing and hugely status so you can be from a very poor family and most often the suicide bombers are and so this family can be you know hugely elevated in in society in their villages mm. because uh because one of their their Sons was a suicide bomber, yeah. so it's oh. yeah. Um, all right, so in, it, going back to the decision to leave, um, other yeah, than decision the to leave. So I did start to notice. So you had this first month of sort of strange freedom, and then you started to just notice things were becoming. There was much more of an authoritarian crackdown that was happening, and the tele- suddenly the access became a lot more difficult, and the Taliban were becoming just a lot more difficult to deal with. You started. Um, even to themselves, like you go through checkpoints, and I would even see Taliban running a checkpoint. They would ch- at least, you know, thank goodness, but they were at least checking Taliban's that were going through, and even the Taliban's were being reprimanded for ha- being told they needed to join either the police or the military. So they were trying to streamline things, but in streamlining things, you started to see this dictatorship kind of coming into play. Um, and uh, you know, I had even one incident where. I was at my the restaurant that I was telling you I love Herat. I was in the family section, and you know Taliban's are not supposed to be going into any private homes or any private uh, businesses or restaurants. And and I was was being harassed by these two Taliban's who said they were you know intelligence, but refused to show me their ID, and then were badgering me uh, for my ID and why I was there. And I just I just told them to f off that I wasn't giving them anything. Uh, Jake was being my photographer was being much nicer to them, trying to explain. Oh, I'm a photojournalist, and we're from here. And I just said, don't talk to them. They don't have permission to ask you that. Um, so I filed a complaint about on them because I figured if you don't say something, they continue this sort of behavior of going around, um, 
you know, asking people and accusing people of being spies. And I found that that was just happening more and more. You'd go through checkpoints and then suddenly the intelligence departments were stopping you and questioning you. And it just became a lot more uncomfortable. It became... Uh, there was always a sense of unease and not just with the Taliban but the level of ISIS attacks that were happening you'd be sitting in a cafe and next thing you know there's just there's a bomb that just happened a block away and it's and it was becoming so routine that you just you start to feel just that little bit of okay like it's 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 a little bit on edge now and so when um as much as I didn't want to leave when you know the time came I very much trust my instincts and I think that's one of the things in my career that's always saved me is is instinct, is knowing when to be in a situation and when not to be and when the time to leave is. Um, and I felt that my time was very much at that point was up. Obviously, I was writing a lot about the Taliban. I was writing a lot about ISIS um, and, and being quite critical with that and you know, they have media departments that scour through, that speak very good <coughs> English, that, that know exactly what you're doing and, and what you're saying and who you're speaking to. And I just felt that that I was upsetting people and that's part of my job. But part of my job is to know when to leave. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever get the sense that you had, had pissed them off to the point where they were starting to take kind of offensive uh, precaution measures of keeping you out of certain things or, or I don't think it was specifically targeted at me trying to keep them out I think it was just they would just suddenly become terrified of journalists and terrified yeah. of of how they were being perceived and and I only really had one um big problem with one Taliban uh, official um and he was sort of someone who who kind of runs this morality police and we just had a disagreement he tried to argue with me over an interview that he'd said that was recorded and then tried to pretend he didn't say it when I was like, you, I have the recording, you said it like multiple times. Um, and he caused a lot of <laughs> anxiety. What, what was the comment that he was pissed about? He was just upset. You know, he'd been part of a shooting down of a, a U.S. aircraft and then tried to say, no, it wasn't this aircraft, it was another aircraft. It was really pathetic. But he just created so much big deal about it and was threatening me and I'm going to report you. And in the end, I just went, you know what, you can just – because like I don't care at this point yeah. um as soon as I stopped caring it kind of <laughs> went away I think the yeah. more you play into it the more it proliferates and and I'm sure he hates me yeah. um but uh yeah I was like I it's your problem not mine yeah <laughs> that's funny um what, what was the process for actually leaving then um so by that point there were several commercial flights that were happening I think one to Dubai, and and I ended up taking a, a Cam Air flight to uh, to Abu Dhabi. So it was pretty easy for me. It wasn't anything uh, different. Um, by the time I'd gotten back uh, to the airport, and I, uh, you know, the, a lot of the old airport staff were there, so they sort of knew how to run things. Um, it was it was bizarre though. So the week before I left, I'd gone to Herat on a commercial flight. And mind you, it lands without any lights, no landing instruments. Like I was like, okay, I'm back. Thank goodness. Um, and I went to the military side of the airport because I wanted to go and see what had happened to all the equipment that was blown up by the U.S. before they left. And so I go to request permission uh, on the military side. And you're just looking at this guy, these guys, and, you know, with their Afghan dress and their beards and their turbans and, 
they're like, how are you running Kabul Airport? Like, this is crazy. <laughs> yeah. And I said to the guy who's in charge of it, I said, how did you get this job? He said, oh, during the evacuation, I just walked in. And <laughs> I said, <laughs> okay, this is, unco- this is comforting. Yeah. And I knew a pilot for one of the commercial air f- airlines, and he said that the guy, the Taliban, who's head of security, said to him, which way is the exit? Holy shit. <laughs> so I was like, this wow. is not comforting. But yeah. in any case, I booked a flight. I had to I had to get cash. I had to get a friend to get, get me cash from Dubai because they weren't taking, you know, any other cards and and um very expensive flights. But I it was really the, the best way to get out. And so I, I booked a commercial flight <coughs> um to get out. And so I it was a you know chaotic airport situation and then get on a plane and it's me and a bunch of Taliban on the plane. So they moved me to the front, the family section. So I kind of had an entire, I think I was pretty much the only woman on the plane and had the entire section to myself. And um, yeah, and that was. Any, any stewardesses on the, uh, on the plane? No. Oh, they were, no, it was all men. Yeah. yeah, it was, it was fine. They were very lovely. They kept coming up after me. Did I want more food? Did I want more meals? Yeah. What was the food on there? I'm curious. You know, Kama actually has really good food. Really? It has really nice, you know, good Afghan kebabs and, yeah. and bread and. Any yogurt? You, yeah. Oh, no, maybe not. Yeah. I might've had to make a special request yeah. for that. But, uh. But yeah, the other airline that I flew to Herat was uh, Ariana Airline, which is a little bit of a step down from Gamair. It's, yeah. it's not quite as a not quite as a safe feeling, but yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it all sounds pretty dicey to me. At uh, you know the level of courage I think that that it would require to do what you do is uh, is pretty staggering. Uh, it, um, it's definitely an inspiration, no doubt about it. Uh, in the last little bit that you were there, or I guess once it fell from once Kabul fell and it really felt like there was a, a shift. You saw a lot of reports here about China kind of jockeying for uh, some roles in mining and things like that. Was there any evidence of that? Or did so you China see? already had a contract in Mazinak, which is in Logar province. It's, I mean, it's just sitting on trillions of copper, uh, you know, and, and they signed – they got this lease deal in 2008 um, that they, they were able to sign that deal and, and beat out a lot of tenders from Canada and the U.S. And, and, but they never were able to really develop it. They did some exploration but were never able to start the excavation because of uh, the security situation. But they have a 30-year lease on it. And that's a gold mine. absolutely. If they're able to tap into that, you run the problem of, you know, because Mazinak is also an incredible historian site. You've got really just old Buddhas dating back to the 4th, 5th centuries. You've got the Zoroastrian temples there. It's, you know, and that that is risky because you may lose a lot of that when you start to excavate. Um, but, I mean, back in 2001, you know, we didn't have smartphones. We didn't have electric cars. So the value really for something like that wasn't there. But today, I mean, it's an absolute gold mine if, if China is able to to begin yeah. that process because they still have the lease on it. Um, but you did see a lot of, of uh, reports about China. Supposedly, you know, the Taliban said we're going to rely on China for money and for aid. But I also heard toward the end of it that that the Taliban had never received that money. Yeah. So they were angry at China at the same time because China had said in the beginning, we're going to give you X, Y, Z. And then I was hearing that the Taliban, that they hadn't sort of followed through that. So that yeah. was, that was creating some problems with the Taliban. Um, there were, there were reports about China having taken over Bagram. 
Um, I could never verify that, but Taliban was not letting anybody into Bagram. So either they just weren't letting people in or there was something that they didn't want people to see in Bagram. Yeah. One thing in thinking of China trying to go in there and mine things, especially in that area, I can't imagine that 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 would go on for very long before, you know, some excavators get drunk or grab a a woman or, you know, something like that happens and it just turns into a total shitstorm. It's possible for sure. Um, But but part of the agreement was that China is supposed to build roads and bridges and all kinds of stuff around it. But just knowing like construction crews coming in and, and, you know, from a totally different culture that probably doesn't give a shit what, yeah. You know, even even if they get the brief going in, hey, don't do this, don't do that. I mean, it's no different than uh, Americans in Okinawa or or anybody anywhere that yeah. isn't from there. That you know, the, the type of people that do yeah. that kind of work, you know, are usually blue collar folks that you know are just like, yeah, whatever. And and yeah. then it turns into this terrible. You, yeah, like I, I just can't imagine that going well for yeah. very long. And I think but, that's you know what the Taliban is. They they're very strict about. Um, you know, any any country that wants to come in and, and do deals. And I said, you know, are you open to U.S. contracting? And they said, uh, we're open to any country, but they've got to follow our law. Yeah. They've got to follow our Islamic law. They can't bring in their, their own influence or their own way yeah, of doing Yeah, they're going to have booze and porn and yeah, everything just, else. Yeah, you know, that, it's not going to fly. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so w- once you got back, uh, kind of looking back on it, uh, I'm curious – uh, kind of three three main questions, which is from a big picture standpoint. Again, Madam President, like what what would you do? Uh, you know, to ha- having the perspective that you have, which I would argue is is as well rounded as probably anybody, and, and more well rounded than almost everyone. Um, you know, I know that there's not a perfect solution, but what what is your take on if you were running the show, what what you would do? I think it's important to acknowledge that, and this again, it's not a popular, it's not what people want to often hear, but the Taliban of today so far, and I stress so far, we don't know what happens down the road, so far is very different to the Taliban of the 90s. So far they haven't implemented the morality police going around, they haven't started chopping off hands yet, they haven't... um, they haven't done a lot of those very stringent things and they and they say they're very determined to 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 paint a different picture to what was kind of happening in the 90s which and they were obviously a very very terrifying regime then um and certainly you know a terrifying regime now but 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 they have they have grown a lot in the 20 years they've been exposed to social media they've been exposed to a lot of different things and are certainly trying to put forward they're desperate for international recognition and that was one thing they never got in their last uh, their last reign, so now they're desperate for a seat at the UN. Um, to to them, that's the legitimization, and so they're sort of trying to do what they can to put their best foot forward. So I think um, in dealing with them again, I going back to to what I said earlier about it would be tone deaf to to completely isolate them because I think that would be a national security threat. I think that we don't have to necessarily have diplomatic relations. We don't have to have you know, this positive relationship with them, but I think it's important to have a, a, a channel of communication where um, if things happen or, or we can also use... The U.S. is still the superpower who can use leverage, who can use, um, you know, its standing in the world to put pressure on the Taliban, to try to, to put them into line. I don't think we should be having dialogue with them that isn't about 
ensuring that you know that they are putting the interests of the Afghan people forward in a in a positive way. Um, and I think really the most important thing now is is to to have that line of communication to put pressure on them for some accountability to really deal with the reality that is not the reality we want. The Taliban is not going anywhere right now. Um, there is no country that's going to come in and take them out. There is no resistance force that's strong enough to take them. And quite frankly, I think Afghans have had enough war for for a little while. They've been at war for the past 30 years. So I think I don't want to see, you know, any large-scale efforts to, to that will plunge that country back into war. The Taliban has proven how strong it is. And it would take a lot, I think, at this point for them to not be in power. So I think in dealing with that, we, we have to deal with the fact that they are in power and will be in power for some time. And to turn a blind eye isn't really the best solution. And so what we can do to sort of support Afghans themselves to be able to feed their families, you know, to, to fill those basic necessities, that's what needs to happen. Yeah. Just the, the aid piece still kind of on the fence as to how to even make that happen? Yeah, I think there just has to be, there has to be a way of <clears throat> administering it, whether we have somebody like a Qatar or a, a middle country that is able to kind of go in and, and ensure accountability and ensure that distribution and ensure that it's not being taken by the Taliban or that the money is not being used to to fund the Taliban's military desires, that it is being – and I don't think Americans necessarily have to do that themselves. I think the reason we have relationships with a lot of these sort of um, more neutral countries, whether that be in Oman or, or um, a Qatar or UAE or another country that can go in and ensure that accountability that, that we you know trust, that can ensure that somehow it's not squandered into corruption. I think that that might be um, the best solution for now until, you know, or if America f sort of ever feels that it, it can go back in itself, but that's always a slippery slope. Yeah, so. yeah absolutely. Um, from your perspective, the American uh, society as a whole, what is, what is one of, or, or if there are a few biggest misconceptions that we have about, uh, Afghanistan, especially right now? Um, I think that, you know, you mean as America, just as a society. Yeah. yeah. I think the, again, the biggest misconception is you know, that there is some sort of genocide that's happening in Afghanistan under the Taliban, which just isn't accurate. It's not happening. There is certainly isolated cases, but it's just not, people are not being dragged from their home and, and shot en masse in the street. So if, if you were to compare it to, say, Iraq and Syria at the height of ISIS when, you know, you were mm. in some of those areas, is, is it, would you say that it's a fair representation that a lot of people think that that's how it is and it's not? Yeah, I think people think that's how it is and, yeah. and that's what's, what's happening and, and certainly cases get perpetuated and, and a rumor will start and say, well, somebody was beheaded and then a celebrity tweets that this person was beheaded and suddenly everybody believes this person was beheaded and it's like, but this never happened, you know, or, or this poor person was murdered 12 months ago by a family fight, but she was never beheaded by the Taliban. But somehow these yeah. things get twisted and perpetuated and I just think it doesn't do anybody a service to... Uh, to to spin things that just aren't true and and for me it's 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 just about the fact you know I don't I don't have it's important I think for journalists you, to not go in there with sort of agenda or to go in there with a 
already a preconceived idea of what they're going to say or write, I think it's really important. This is something we've lost is just that ability just to go in there and look at what's happening yeah. and look at the fact and, and whether we, we, if whether it's something we want to hear or it's not, that doesn't matter. Yeah. We have to report the truth as we see it. And that always makes you a target for anyone who doesn't want to hear that. You know, and that, that was one thing I really struggled with in Afghanistan was you would report something as truthfully as possible and the level of hate and arguments that I would get no matter what side it was that wanted to argue with me about it. That are sitting over here. Yeah, and I was like, I don't understand why I'm even arguing with you about this or why you refuse to believe that this is the situation because it doesn't line up with the preconceived notion. And it's, I, I found it to be really frustrating in Afghanistan. Imagine. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine. I mean, yeah. so it, it's fair to say that the, the time you spend in Iraq and Syria from a uh, civil rights or a humanitarian standpoint was far graver, would you say? Than I think, I mean, obviously, I think, yeah, the, the, the actions of ISIS of the Daesh are a lot more, um, just more barbaric. I mean, yeah. in those areas that I said that I went to, that are controlled a lot by ISIS. I mean, it's just every day they'll they'll dump heads in a in a sewage ditch or in they'll Afghanistan be, even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they'll they they will get Taliban fighters and they will behead them and and hang them up from a tree with a ladder next to them, warning people do not pick up these bodies. They're very very barbaric. It's yeah. just the way they they are. Whereas I don't find quite the same level of um of just yeah. barbarianism from the Taliban as, as much as they do terrible things and especially through the insurgency we're just we're really stone-cold killers but I think um, there's just a difference there yeah I suppose it stands to reason uh, as a society you know the, the Taliban has been kind of public enemy number one mm-hmm. for 20 years and so to to think that all of a sudden that they're not or that, that they're anything short of just being the, the worst humans yeah. on earth is hard for people to and it's hard it's hard for me to to wrap my head around them going from an insurgency to a government overnight. Um, And I I said that to them too. I said, you can't expect, because they would always complain and say, oh, the media paints us like this, this, and this. And I said, you can't expect. I said, you've been killing Afghans. You've been killing Americans. You've been sending kids to blow themselves up at a checkpoint for 20 years. I said, you can't expect anyone to forgive you overnight. You have to show by your actions that you're different, that you get you're going to change. I said, don't you know? In the same token, don't expect people are just going to suddenly look at you and think that that you maybe aren't as bad as you once were. No matter what image you try to portray, because yeah. this is how you're remembered. Yeah, what you do speaks so loud I can't hear what you say. Right, <laughs> one of my favorite quotes. Uh, all right, last question. I promise. Uh, what have I not asked you that I should have, or that you want to talk about? Gosh, I think we've kind of covered everything really i everything. guess it's just um do i plan to go back yes <laughs> really how uh, like soon or yeah what? soon really? i was just applying for a new visa um maybe in the spring your, par- your parents have uh oh, they, my poor they parents. Just, like down pepto for or like ulcer treatment or what like do you just i give think them- they just you know my dad tries to engage with it a little bit more and they're in they're in sydney and they try to my dad tries to kind of stay up with it and he's he's very empathetic toward especially the plight of children and things like that. And my mother, who's a kindergarten teacher, she just can't she wrap her head around that. any of it. Can't read it, can't 
understand it. Just, <clears throat> yeah, so it's difficult for Is them. it to the point where, like, she doesn't even want to know when you go or, like, um, want, just wants to bury her head in the sand? She or? wants to bury her head in the sand, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. But then but then she'll, like, when I was there, especially the, the couple of days before the fall, she was harassing me. You know, what's up every five minutes? Are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? Um, yeah. yeah, so, and it's hard on them, but I think the – I don't know that they'll ever get used to it. I think it's always harder for people on the outside that care about you to, because everything seems so far away and so foreign and so terrifying when you're only seeing snippets of it on the news. I think it's a lot harder for people on the outside than for you who's on the inside who certainly sees the dark side of everything that's happening but at the same time also sees it's not 24-7 bombing and shooting and there's a lot of downtime. There's a lot of fun time. There's a lot of camaraderie and there's a lot of lovely things that happen and you see the best of people in war and I think you don't always see that from the outside so everything looks a lot more terrifying than it is. Yeah. No, I, I don't doubt it. I, You know, for me it's having had a lot of friends that have lost their lives there and, and coming from a community that, that is very heavily invested, uh, you know, in, in that region – there's a lot of a lot of seeing over the last six months, you know, that's been pretty tough to to stomach. And uh, you know, obviously, not having been in your shoes, you've seen a lot of things that uh, that I or even even a lot of guys from from that community haven't seen. Um, I, I do think it, it's kind of gotten to the point where you just have to pick. Like it's either you know you, you let happen what's going to happen over there, and you and you do the best to your ability, or you go back over and, and have this never ending conflict with no real clear-cut goal in mind and i think yeah. that's been one of our biggest problems is not really having an, an idea mental picture or or otherwise whether it's a description of you know a, a line item list of goals or, or boxes that need to be checked to to be considered a a mission success that never really existed um you know and i just when i think about all the guys that i do know that didn't come home from there and thinking about are their lives worth that uh, i don't think they are no and uh, i it's a painful realization, I think. Yeah. Someone asked me recently, um, Australian friend, and said, "Well, is that, you know, we know a lot of people who served. Is that was it worth it?" And I don't know. Yeah. I, don't, I, I, I don't see that right now. Yeah. I, I, on the same token, yeah. I think it's important um, to look at it from a very simple standpoint. Uh, similarly, the the reason why I joined the military is that. You know, I, I'm not in the position of, of being in, in our nation's leadership and determining where we go, yeah. what we do, why we do it, who we do it with. Um, you know, but, but all of us volunteer uh, to serve our country uh, in a manner with which our country sees best fit. Yeah. You know, and, and you just have to be okay with that and realize that those people are human. They're going to make mistakes. Some of them are even shitty people. Yeah. Uh, you know, but you either you either roger up and volunteer to do that or you don't, you yeah. know, and if you do, you just have to be OK with with where they send you and what you do or you just don't do it, you yeah. know, and and uh, I don't think it takes away from, you know, the level of sacrifice or, or that those guys did what was asked of them and, and went above and beyond it. I don't think it takes away from any of that. And I think mm -hmm. if I had to, to pinpoint the 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 most important distinction to make as far as that goes is that don't think of of guys dying in vain just because their sacrifice wasn't worth the result there yeah the fact is is that you know a lot of things have come out of it that wouldn't have come out of it otherwise in terms of us not being attacked at home and sure. and the entire you know global um global society or the entire world understanding that when america says it's going to do something and and not 
waver, uh, you know, and spend as long as it as it takes to to accomplish whatever they set out to do. Um, you know, they're they're going to do that, and, and that that is an important thing to be uh, viewed as. You know, as as a hundred percent. As, as a, I think Lyndon B. Johnson said, if you say you're going to send a man to hell, you better be sure as hell be ready to you know have the backup to do it. And, yeah. And at that particular point in time, that was what the U.S. made, and I. I just hope that we look at Afghanistan and the lessons that come from that. And you could argue with a lot of the same things with Iraq as well when it comes to the corruption and to, um, you know, decisions made. And I just hope that we can we can take some of those lessons um, yeah. and, and use those for future foreign policy decisions and, and use those when we are thinking about, you know, should the U.S. go into a country or shouldn't? And if we do what are the mistakes of the past that we can avoid yeah. going forward? Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think, uh, I, I think we should use a, a, a tougher measuring stick in terms of getting involved in places. Not that we shouldn't ever get involved, but I think it just like say a street fight, you know, is that I'll use me as an example. Like there's a lot of times I, I could get in a fight and I don't, um, you know, and to me, like, I'm not going to get in a fight unless I absolutely fucking have to, you know, but if, if I am pushed to that point, there's also going to be zero accommodations made for the feelings of whoever has pushed me to that point, uh, and their safety or, or livelihood or family or, or anything. And I think we've learned that lesson historically over the last several millennia, I'd say maybe most recently with Tecumseh Sherman and the civil war of saying, uh, you know, hey, I'm going to make this so god awful for the other side that they're just not even going to want to fight. And, and to me, once you get to that point, you have to look at it that way: is that what is the purpose of war? Well, it, it's to uh, to to make the other side stop doing whatever they're doing. You know, I, I view the same same thing with prison: is that if prison is supposed to keep people from doing things, then it should be way worse than it is. It shouldn't. They shouldn't be ha have accommodations made to make their lives comfortable. And and so with all of that that from a principle standpoint, I think needs to be taken into account before we decide to do something and say, we're not going to go do this unless we absolutely have to. But if we do, you know, we're going to use absolutely every resource at our disposal to, uh, to be so overwhelmingly brutal that, that people are going to say, you know what, we're not going to fuck with that country anymore. Yeah. I, I really do because war sucks no matter how you skin it. And, uh, and there's no good way to fight it other, other than to make it as short as possible in, in my opinion. But yeah, yeah, and you look at, you know, straight off to uh, September 11, just how quickly the U.S. was able to go in and get rid of the Taliban yeah. from power. And then I think, you know, it's the, the, the lack of goals that happened when it was trying to, to build a nation and, and that sort of period of not knowing the right way to do it. And, and I think that was that's something for the history books to really look at going forward. Yeah. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. 
UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. Yeah, I think I think we got uh, punched in the mouth and knocked on our ass and decided we have to do something and fast and did. And then when we got there, we kind of kicked the can down the road for 20 years mm. and, uh, and never had a, a real clear-cut plan as to what uh, success looked like. But mm. um, And Afghans themselves really weren't directly responsible for 9-11 yeah. that was that was saudis that were flying those yeah. planes and and osama was found in pakistan so yeah. yeah you've yeah difficult difficult decisions yeah yeah no doubt about it uh, anything else that you want to bring up from uh, from your time being over there um no i think i've covered most of it other than yeah i i think it's important just from a journalist's point of view, to continue covering a place even when it's not in the headlines anymore, and I think just because the the U.S. sort of leaves a place you know, doesn't mean that that we forget about it. And I think people have sacrificed a lot uh, to Afghanistan, and I think that it's important just to to really keep telling those stories as as best I can, and to um, to not forget it because yeah. it's. It's a big part of our our history. No, agreed. Um, what what is next for you other than going back? Um, I I trying to trying to not live out of a backpack, which I've been doing yeah. for years. Yeah. Um, so kind of getting some roots here, and then um, yeah, I'll go back to Afghanistan. I've got some work in Eastern Europe, and then um, I'd like to go back to Iraq too, which I haven't been to for a couple of years, and. Um, and Burma as well. So, is there a five-year or ten-year? This is where I want to be. You know, I I think so much about, especially you know, when I was in Afghanistan, I was thinking so much about the work, and I just love what I do. I just don't know. I don't know what else I could possibly do that I would love so much, and I think that's something I'm just grateful for. I think so. You know, so much of our lives we spend trying to figure out what we're supposed to be doing, what's meaningful to us. And, and I'm grateful that it was something that I, you know, I found very young in life. Um, um, yeah, I don't know again how I'm going to feel in five years, but right now I, I love writing and, and telling those stories and I just, I can't envision myself doing anything else. I, yeah. I don't know what, what else I would do. Yeah. Well, it, it shows, uh, you know, you are, are profoundly, uh, gifted at what you do and I can't thank you enough for doing what you do and, and being willing to come and, and share your story here. I, I think um, your level of, of dedication and courage and bravery to to be a voice for the people that you are a voice for uh, is absolutely nothing short of inspiring. And, uh, and I think a, a lot of, especially in this country, a lot of young young kids, boys and girls, uh, you know, should take a page out of your book and, uh, and hopefully pay attention to you and look up to you because you're, you're an amazing human. So, And, and uh, just one thing I'll add is you see, you just see how incredible humans can be in the yeah. sense of, of how much people can withstand and, and rebuild their lives. And, and we all, I think, have that, we all have that innate resilience and, and you see it when you're in these places and it's, it's really inspiring to me of just of how much we, we can endure and, and get through and, and bounce back really yeah absolutely uh before we wrap it up where can people find any of the stuff that you've written and in, in your coverage is there a kind of a collected place with all of it yeah you? so um you can follow me on instagram and twitter at holly h-o-l-l-i-e-s mckay um i have also 
uh, Substack as well, hollysmckay.substack.com, which I put a lot of writings out and links to, to work as I publish it. Um, and I have my book, Only Cry for the Living, which you can also get. Um, it's from D'Angelo Publications. And I also have my photographer, Jake, and I have a, a, a beautiful photo book on Afghanistan that's going to come out in the spring. Oh, so, sweet. yeah, it'll be just really um, I guess a coffee table book, really some beautiful photographs, hopefully of parts of Afghanistan that people haven't seen, and just um, and I sort of did the writing to go with it. Oh wow, that's awesome! Yeah, that'll be uh, that'll be neat. Well, good stuff. Well, thank you again. Um, you know, I know you're busy, and uh, you're between Idaho and Virginia. I think uh, stopping here, so uh, I know we need to get you to the airport. But uh, again, I just can't thank you enough for taking the time. Uh, doing what you do and, and being willing to share it with us. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate yeah, it. Thank you. Uh, to all the listeners out there, I hope uh, this gained some perspective on what's really going on there. I know for me it has. There's a lot of uh, white noise and bullshit in the uh, in the media that uh, is not a, an accurate or true representation of what actually happened. So uh, I feel that interviews like this are excruciatingly important for uh, people to listen to to balance out that uh, non-biased perspective that you just get overwhelmed by in the mainstream media so i hope you got something out of it uh, if you didn't joke yourself and uh, until next time this is mike drop I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witnessed accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.